Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... The Iron List. Clang, clang. Yeah, this is a podcast <laughs> where we do lists. My name is William Dibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Well, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And, yeah, those lists, they sure are a popular thing, aren't they? Uh, People like listing things. Oh, yeah. Um, I would be interested to know... What the very first internet article was presented in mm. list form, like specifically for publication on the internet, because I know they did countdown lists in magazines all the time and mm. and critic groups print lists every year. But surely there was like some internet publisher, some young blogger back in the, the mid 90s who thought to con- like present ideas like as numbered bullet points. Mm-hmm. Be interested to like, know. And again, this like... is something that other publications had done, had done, but it was like a special thing. You do it like once in a while, or they would do like, they would keep lists of like things that actually made sense to have in list form. Like, here are the Nielsen ratings for the week, and you would see in list form what the highest rated TV shows were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the, the list as a format is one of the dominant forms of journalism. Uh, at least in the entertainment industry, uh, on online in the online discourse, and it's easy to see why. Uh, it's a, a simple to understand format. It's good for, uh, you know, it's easy reading, episodic. You know, you can uh, recommend a lot of things in a short amount of time. You mm-hmm. can stir up conversation by having unexpected choices. It tracks. Yeah. Um, I, I I like it as a critic more than anything else. I like it as here's an excuse. To recommend movies or sometimes contextualize them. Yeah. yeah. So we can talk about like what makes a great uh, haunted house movie, what makes a great 80s action movie, whatever it is you're talking about. And uh, this time on the Iron List, we got an interesting topic. Uh, As always, the topic was chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, Every month we put together a poll of ideas, things that we think might make a fun list, and then our patrons pick whichever topic we're going to do this month. And this month, the topic that they chose was not just the best G-rated movies, but the best G-rated live-action movies, which is a smaller genre than you might think. Maybe not a genre, but a smaller group of films Mm -hmm. than you might think. Uh, the, the G rating, uh, it isn't used so much anymore. And we, we've talked about this on the podcast before. It still crops up from time to time, but something about the way, uh, films for kids, uh, like with a young audience in mind are made these days tend to, uh, I guess they're made with a little bit more energy or a little bit more realism or a little bit more violence, whatever it is the straight up G rating doesn't seem to be employed even in animated fare a lot these days. A lot of uh, the, mm-hmm. the films that come out of Pixar or Disney are now PG rated. Uh, I'm having trouble remembering what the last new G rated film that came out was. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a big one. I mean, like there, there was, is Marcel the shell G rated? It looks like really innocent and cute. Um, not really sure. Hmm. Uh, yeah, right I don't now. know. I don't remember the rating on Marcel the Shell. I, you should see Marcel the Shell though. That's it's it's really excellent. 
I hear it's great. I really want to see mm. it. Uh, I haven't had the opportunity yet. Uh, no, it's PG for some reason. I, I think what happened with the G rating, and again, the G uh, at the if you're not from America, we don't follow the MPAA ratings. Um, G is the lowest rating on the ratings well, totem pole. The, it means general audiences. Anyone first can come rating, into a theater. I suppose. I'm not sure. Lowest is correct, but well, okay. well, the least yeah. offensive rating. It's the rating where it's basically. The filmmakers and the Motion Picture Association of America and the theaters are basically telling everyone there is literally nothing you need to worry about in this movie. Let's this see. is, I mean, your, your your children might vary, but like this is intended to be comfortable, safe viewing for all audiences. There's nothing that's going to challenge your children's assumptions. There's nothing that's going to give them nightmares. There's nothing that's going to... Uh, uh, traumatize them in any way yeah well i mean f first maybe we should put uh ratings into context for maybe some of our inter international listeners because uh it, it is different country by country uh very true in in the united states we have uh the the motion picture association previously the motion picture association of america they, they dropped the second a but uh they have a ratings board a classifications board of mysterious shadowy insiders who uh, yeah. you as a filmmaker or a studio can submit a film and they will give it a letter rating. And the letter ratings are, uh, these days, they are G for general audiences, PG, parental guidance, PG-13, parental guidance for kids under 13. There's R-rated films. Uh, if you're under 17, you need an, uh, an adult uh, to accompany you. And then there's NC-17, mm -hmm. no children under 17, uh, even if you have an adult accompaniment. Uh the yeah. term X... It's an optional system, so so you can release a movie unrated. Mm -hmm. However, a lot of uh, theaters will treat that as functionally an NC-17. Yeah, and that that's something that started with, like, Blockbuster Video. They they had um, a rating of their own that they... It was a YRV, Youth Restricted Viewing. And they would put it on anything that didn't have an MPAA rating. Uh, so even if it was a completely innocent, uh, appropriate for kid film, if it didn't have an official rating, it would be considered not okay for kids just by default. Um, mm. I'm looking at a list of like recently released G rated movies. The last one I saw was Paw Patrol, the movie that was rated G. Um, and that was last. Summer. Yeah. And uh, prior to that, it was the documentary film Gunda, which is just about pigs. And, pig and even that's kind of dark. Isn't well, it? Uh, I mean, something kind of dark happens, but there's, you don't see anything. There's like a sad moment. Mm. Uh, and I think that might be part of what's going on here, that there's been this big push toward, like, a more conservative view of these ratings. So anything, uh -huh. any film that has, like, something that's even slightly emotionally intense will now get a PG rating, even if it's yeah. a, a complete lighthearted children's fantasy film. And I and I would argue. Uh, first off, I think it's fair to say that even something like Bambi would probably have gotten a PG in today's yeah. uh, environment, just because of the emotional trauma mm. of the mother dying and stuff like Meanwhile, that. Meanwhile, you you look uh, back to uh, you when you and I were kids, William. Uh, there mm. and a lot of people have written at length about this, but films that are rated PG are now inc would be, get incredibly harsh ratings uh PG-13 or even R ratings these days films like Gremlins yeah. I know Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom uh mm -hmm. and and a couple others that were coming out, out around the same time were really intense like they had a lot of gore and violence 
but they were considered still pretty tonally lighthearted and okay for kids to see, so they got PG ratings. And you look at something like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, people have their hearts being ripped out of their chests, and a lot of there's a lot of people dying in that movie, and there's blood and gore. Yeah. Uh, and because it was a, a lighthearted afternoon adventure picture with Indiana Jones, it got a PG rating, and because of that, the MPAA rethought their rating system, and that's when they introduced PG-13. That was in, like, the mid-'80s. And it's... Anyway, I, th- yeah, I, think, was, the, I think the big thing we have, we're getting at here is that these things evolve and change over time. Yeah, so... What, is, what, what constitutes these ratings shift? And so what was a G rating when the MPAA started using these ratings around 1968 uh, would not necessarily work today. However... Uh, a lot of the earlier films, uh, in fact, if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, there were a lot more G-rated movies that were not specifically intended for children. No, they were just for general audience. The idea of... Yeah. I guess Disney had been making movies like with a younger audience in mind for, for many, many years, but even if you look at some of those earlier Disney films, even the animated ones, those were meant mm-hmm. for a general audience. You know, there there was nothing oh, yeah. kids specific about those movies. They were okay for kids. Kids liked them a lot, but just somehow, uh, some somewhere along the way, the way we thought about what kids consume changed. I think it was just a marketing decision. Someone at, on Madison Avenue decided that kids were an okay market to exploit, and all of a sudden, kids movies, movies specifically for children in mind, started coming out. But when, even when you think about a lot of animated fare from it, from the past, it wasn't kid movie. It was general audience movies. Just kids mm. could see it if they wanted to, but adults were meant to see it too. Indeed. Uh, so we're doing a, a, a ranked list, or not ranked, we're doing a list of our picks for the 10 best live-action G-rated movies. Now, this can incorporate... And now, I, we, we don't always talk about... Uh, criteria before we uh, come up with our separate list. We don't talk about our lists in advance. Mm-hmm. We come up with our own lists based on the criteria we have in our head. Uh, the one big rule that I insisted on for my own list, okay. and I'm curious if it was important to you as well, because I think it makes a big difference. Uh, a lot of movies that came out before the creation of the MPAA rating system as we now know it, uh-huh were eventually re-released and re-rated. That's right. And given whatever rating they were given, a G or an R or whatever. Uh, So from my list, I chose only to include live-action movies that were created when the MPAA existed and not going back to, you know, back during the production code and it just Mm. happened to get a G rating decades later. Uh, Did you have a similar rule or or are are you completely... Flying by the seat of your pants. Uh, no, no, I, I didn't have a rule because uh, if, if even if it is an older film that was made under different production codes, in order, mm-hmm. these are films that actually received that rating. Some studio thought to submit it, and judging by whatever standard of the era in which it was rated, it got a G rating. So it counts. Oh. It's got a G rating. Uh, you know, that's like, you know, not counting okay, it. Okay, we, we... We, we... If we were to say... If we were to, to rate things that had, like, a moribund rating, like GP was an older rating, or people don't use X ratings anymore. That, that used to be the uh, MPAA standard. That, that was a rating. You know, we can say X-rated movies mm-hmm. and have a list of those. Mm-hmm. 
So no, I, very I, different list. I, I did not have any any such compunction. Okay, so our lists are probably going to be very different because you have a lot more classic films that are uh, that are available to you to select, whereas mm. I decided to go uh, a little bit more uh, literal uh, and uh, focus on films that were made during the era in which G ratings were given, as opposed to during an era in which. All audiences were expected to be able to watch all movies, mm. whether or not that held out when the MPAA reevaluated them. So we're going to have different lists. This should be an interesting discussion. Um, the other thing that's important to remember before we get into uh, how we do our lists here at the Iron List is Whitney and I do not rank our movies. Mm-hmm. Whatever our ninth pick is isn't considered like worse than whatever our eighth pick is or our second. Th- these are just uh, these are recommendations all movies that we love. I, yeah, these are all movies that we love. We want you to see all of them. The only exception is we are selecting our number one pick is the one pick we would say this is the best example of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, it might it might be a difficult choice. There might be other films that we think deserve the title. But if we had to pick one film to represent the best live-action G-rated movie in this case, that would be the film. So we'll save that film for last. But everything else, we're just going to go back and forth, and we're just going to have a conversation about the best live-action G-rated movies, uh, which will include, I assume, uh, some family movies, but also potentially some of the more mature films that just happened to get a G rating. Mm-hmm. Um, along those lines, Whitney, is there anything else you want to talk about before we begin? Um, no, I, th- I think we've laid it laid down the groundwork pretty well. Uh... There are a lot, lot of wonderful G-rated movies in the world. Uh, mm. I guess one last thing I wanted to say is uh, one of the reasons the G-rating probably isn't used anymore is something of a stigma. There might be, mm, yeah, uh, uh, you know, the 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 rise of the popularity of PG-13 rated movies. Uh, PG-13 doesn't really refer to content too explicitly anymore. It now is kind of shorthand for any kind of broadly appealing four quadrant kind of a movie. Uh, and G-rated mm. movies are now considered not hip enough for the room. Uh, even little kids, yeah, kids stuff. <clears throat> kid, even little kids who have access to cool don't want to see kids stuff. So uh, when they advertise it's rated G, a kid will now kind of hide their eyes. A teenager certainly won't go to a G-rated film. So the idea yeah. of talking about great G-rated movies is a little bit. Uh, it has a point to it. Like we're trying to, to point out that there are great movies that have this rating. That... Indeed. Oh my goodness. Okay. Whitney. Sorry. Come on, buddy. I, I need to turn down my, my A modicum of decorum, please. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, listen, uh, I'm ready to go. So uh, why don't you start? All right. Wait, you know what? Actually, let me, you know what, let me start because I think yeah, I'm going off of a weirder list than you. Okay. So let me, let me give this a try. Let me, let me, let me start us off maybe. Cause I'm worried you're going to like pick some like all time classic sight and sound film. And I'm going to start off with the first film I'm going to talk about, uh, which is Sesame street presents follow that bird. <laughs> I, I haven't seen follow that bird. So tell me about it. Oh my God. It's so cute. Okay. So uh, I wanted to, I don't have a lot of movies on my list that are explicitly kid stuff. Mm. There's actually mostly films that are more for everybody. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we did represent movies that are explicitly intended for children because that's a perfectly valid uh, art form as well. It's perfectly valid intention. Children need education and they need... Uh, uh, they deserve the, quality the, art. Th- they deserve quality art. The entertainment we give to children should be good. 
whenever possible, just like anything else. Mm-hmm. Just like we, just like we should feed them healthy food. I think we should give our children a diet of positive, productive, well-intentioned, and again, good art whenever possible. You know, the occasional junk food is fine. Uh, Sesame Street presents "Follow That Bird." Is an absolutely delightful, funny film with actually some really solid and and unusual messaging uh, that is also very very entertaining for any adult. Like it's it's definitely intended for children, but I think adults can enjoy it the way they would any other Muppet movie. Mm-hmm. You know, in your uh, Muppets Take Manhattan or uh, The Muppets or Muppets Most Wanted. There's this general tone that I think comes from any Jim Henson production like this where real people interact with puppets on a regular basis and you cannot present that world without a lighthearted tone. There, you can't really have like grim and gritty darkness. Even that uh, movie, The Happy Time Murders, mm-hmm. where Melissa McCarthy was a detective in a world where puppets were real and someone was like serial killing them. Yeah. Even that, even when they were trying to be like edgy, it was, it was kind of cute. So, this movie uh, is about... Okay, Sesame Street is a kid's show that's on PBS. It's been on for uh, many years. It's now moved to HBO, I believe. Mm. Um, it takes place on a, a city street. It's called Sesame Street. And on Sesame Street, a bunch of uh, very decent, very hardworking, very uh, moral uh, adults uh, from all walks of life uh, interact with a variety of puppets, including uh, Oscar the Grouch, who is an angry guy who lives in a garbage can, uh, including uh, Big Bird, who is a very sweet, like, eight-foot-tall, uh, basically child. Mm. He's a very childlike individual. I believe the, the makers in... of Sesame Street actually have a, an intended age, and I think Big Bird is supposed to be five. Yeah, he's a very, very young, very, very innocent person. Follow That Bird is about what happens when a social services group gets overzealous and decides that Big Bird uh, Mm. should be raised by his own kind. So they take him away from Sesame Street and give him to a family of birds who are also, you know, in the the puppety domain. Uh, Big, they're they're reasonably well-intentioned birds. He's not, like, horribly treated, but it's not right. Mm. And he realizes that his found family is the family that is for him. And he runs away. And ends up traveling across country trying to get back to Sesame Street. Uh, meanwhile, uh, once he disappears, uh, there, he's essentially a missing child. And he's all over the news. And everyone on Sesame Street realizes that Big Bird is missing. And they all get up. They're all mismatched and in different, like, they get in different cars that are all, like, souped up and very, you know, specific. Like, the Count, this vampire who teaches kids how to count. Uh, he has, like, a Munster mobile kind of thing. A Dragula. Like, yeah. they all get in their... Yeah, they all get in their fun cars and they travel across the country getting into a variety of adventures. One of my favorite bits is when Oscar the Grouch uh, takes everyone in his car to go to a Grouch cafe where everyone in the cafe is also like a garbage eating uh, a-hole. And it's just, it's as funny as you might think. It's really, really it's got tons of great. Does Oscar eat garbage? He doesn't eat the garbage. He just lives in a garbage can. 
Well, he he eats he eats slop basically. Like he doesn't like he doesn't have like a refined palate. He eats a bunch of gross stuff in this in this uh, uh, cafe. Um, <laughs> along the way, Big Bird basically gets kidnapped, like in Pinocchio, and like forced to perform at like a traveling carnival. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they have to rescue him. And there's a, one, a lot of wonderful cameos. People like John Candy, you know, Chevy Chase, uh, and there's a lot of really sweet musical numbers that are incredibly catchy. And absolutely lovable. Uh, I saw this movie when I was a kid. I loved this movie when I was a kid. And I saw this movie when it came out, like when I was like four. Okay. Um, And I adored it to pieces. And I was very pleasantly surprised to discover, and I hadn't seen it in well over 25 years, uh, when I rewatched it like just last year because I was doing research for something, Mm -hmm. that it is as good as any Muppet movie. It is absolutely sweet. It is made for children, but it has, you know, some real storytelling elements. Like, Big Bird is kidnapped by a carnival. He's sad. We get to see Big Bird cry. Like, actual tears coming out of his eyes. And it means something. It works. Um, And the message, which is basically uh, the importance of not sticking to your own kind and actually, like, finding family and friends who are from everywhere all around you. Mm is a great message that sadly too few people have learned. Uh, so as the most, and I've got a few other kid-friendly movies, but as the most kid-friendly thing on my list, okay. uh, I really wanted to give this one a shout-out because I love this movie and I think it holds up better than people realize. And as a movie that is distinctly made for little kids, mm-hmm. I think everyone can get something out of it as well. So I'm picking Follow yeah, That Bird. I, I, I've, I have not seen Follow That Bird. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I am um, like a lot of people uh, my age. I watched. Uh, well, I guess every kid watches Sesame Street as when they're children. Uh, if you have access yeah, to it, it, yeah. it was, I mean, I, I don't know all around the world how available it is. I know there are different Sesame Streets in different yeah, countries. Yeah, the uh, yeah, and there are different like Sesame Street characters in other countries too. Um, I know that when Sesame Street was created uh, back in the nineteen seventies, or maybe it was even the sixties. They the entire point was they were going to make a children's entertainment show that was meant to uh, uh, emulate the way children learn because it's it it is an educational program. They actually talked to educators and they figured out the way little kids absorb information and they constructed their entertainment like that, which is why there are so many there's live action people. There's a lot of different kind of segments because little kids can pay attention to little tiny segments. They like the puppet characters. They like the human characters. Then they like interacting. Mm-hmm. And it was actually very staunchly principled for a long time. They really wanted to stick to their guns when it came to educating kids. And and it's very simple education. It's, you know, it's spelling and counting and letters. Uh, it's, you know, preschool stuff. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until Elmo came along in the 1990s that, and the creators of the show w- would say this, that the show kind of fell apart. And in and when I say that I mean Elmo was such a commercial juggernaut that they actually had to start rewriting the show to accommodate the character. He became too popular. Yeah. And it became about Elmo not about Exactly. Lenny. And the problem is Elmo yeah. uh, I looked it up. Big, Big Bird was supposed to be 6. And I think Elmo was supposed to be about 3 or 4. He was a much younger child. And when you have that young a child as your main character, there's a lot less sophisticated stuff you can do. 
And as such, all of, all of the stuff, the Elmification of Sesame Street kind of changed it in a lot of ways. And it's now not even on public television anymore. It's on HBO, which is kind of antithetical yeah. to what the uh, the creators meant. But Follow That Bird came out in, you said you were six. It was like the, the early 80s that, show, that movie came out. So it was still uh, Sesame Street at its finest, as it were. Uh, it's I agree. Sesame Street kind of at its peak. And, you know, when, when they could have sort of this lighthearted cinematic adventure, you know, not, the film is not educational. They're not going to stop and teach kids how to count in the movie. Uh, they don't it's, actually. It's actually no, it, just it is it is more story yeah, based, it, but it's got it does have like moral. Yeah, yeah, too. and uh, I think and another big part of of uh, Sesame Street was learn teaching kids how to deal with feelings. And I I've heard people talk about follow that that bird about how sad it is about how it's it's mm-hmm. about uh, Big Bird going away. It's about Big Bird being captured. It's about people looking for a friend and not being able to find them. It's all about melancholy, and in so doing, it's actually teaching kids how to face that kind of sadness. And I feel like Agreed. those kinds of kids' movies, uh, well, I guess they're, they're they're not so rare, but it seems like the goal of a lot of kids' movies is to sort of, like, thrill and distract. There's a new movie coming out this weekend, as of this recording, about the Minions. The Minions just gibber and have adventures and knock things over. They're just, like, little kids who are yep. agents of chaos. And that's yeah. fine. When bad things happen in a Minions movie, there's not a lot of action. I think in the first Despicable Me, there was some genuine emotional heft because there were orphan kids who really wanted a dad. Mm. And it still was pretty mild, but they had some. And that was quickly abandoned in favor of entertainment and distraction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but like Sesame Street, Follow That Bird is actually willing to sit in the emotions of its characters when they are not happy yeah yeah and as a result i agree i think this is a movie that is about giving kids an opportunity to feel and process those emotions and then yeah lift them up again afterwards it's not a depressing movie it's just there's sad parts in Mm -hmm. it just like in many a classic disney movie that we venerate so uh in any case well what is your what is your first pick that you want to talk Uh, about well i guess i'll start with my most uh, kid-friendly film uh, one that is actually shown to kids and has been shown to kids for many many decades uh it's the wizard of oz um it's uh, i'm surprised this isn't your number one it, sh- it really should be uh but you know I, I have my number one and i'll let you know what it is when we get there but yeah the wizard of oz okay. uh credited to victor fleming directed by five or six directors um <laughs> you know it, it was released in 1939 it was up for a bunch of academy awards it didn't win best picture that year it lost to uh gone with the wind which uh, is uh, nowadays a, hasn't aged great. yeah it hasn't hasn't aged as well as the wizard of oz that's for sure um the wizard of oz yeah. is without hyperbole one of the best movies ever made and, and i think may continue to be it's an example like casablanca where a bunch of studio chaos somehow produced a classic. Uh, yeah. Every every studio film aims for something like The Wizard of Oz, which is why they keep doing it. Uh, they're just going for, with, like, they choose the big star, they choose some exciting, colorful visuals, they choose a hot property of a, or a book that somebody's reading a lot of, and they just throw it into the Hollywood machine and hope something good comes out of it. And if you know anything about the production of The Wizard of Oz, and everybody does at this point, it's, you know, grievously detailed all throughout film history in all kinds of textbooks. 
you'll know that it was just a really messy production. There were a lot, you know, there were last minute cast changes and a lot of reshoots and not everybody was happy and the makeup was making people sick. Uh, people were underpaid. Uh, the dog was paid better than any of the human actors. Judy Garland, the lead actress, infamously mistreated by a lot of the studio heads. Uh, and yet somehow it came out on the other side as an indelible piece of cinema that has entrenched itself so deeply into the, the pop consciousness, it's practically Jungian at this point. And we can talk about sort of the meaning of the film, how if it's a metaphor or if it's just a, a lighthearted story. It works on all of those levels. Uh, it works on every possible level. And I think as time passes, it will continue to work on new levels and yet is still just a lighthearted, fun, almost campy romp for a little kid or for an adult. Um, it, it's not at my number one because I've put it at, at my top spot in other lists in the past. And I feel like I don't need to say much more about The bit Wizard of, of Oz. Yeah, it's a bit of a cliche. I, I don't need to say much about The Wizard of Oz, but at the same time, I'd feel a little bit weird not talking about it. So, um, yeah, there it is, The Wizard of Oz. You've seen it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I mean, go, please do. Uh, there's there's nothing but delight <laughs> to be discovered. Uh, if you're an adult and you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, then uh, maybe you're lucky. Maybe you get to sort of sit and appreciate this thing for the first time with an adult's mind. That's not something I got to do. I watched this a bunch as a kid. It's so familiar now that whenever I I, I try to watch it again, I can't. It's like I, I just sort of mm. tune it out. It just becomes part of my subconscious at that point. I think that's part of the, the I think that's part of the film's legacy. I think it has become part of the pop culture subconscious. Mm-hmm. I think The Wizard of Oz is one of those movies, rare movies, that th- there's a there's a there's a device they have, a plot device they have in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Where Doctor Who is constantly traveling through time, getting in all kinds of adventures, and this is not the kind of show where, you know, you step on a butterfly and then everything is yeah. different. It's basically the idea is time more or less writes itself, provided you don't screw up anything too bad. And there are a series of events. I forget what they're called. But there's a series of events that are so absolutely important to history mm-hmm. that they cannot be changed. Like uh, the destruction of Pompeii, for yeah, example. That, well, uh, like you can't, you can't prevent that because if you change yeah, that... All of history has changed. It's just too much. It's a radical. Uh, it's it's a it's uh, a, a clever way to write around the morality of time travel. Like if if they're going to go back yeah. in time, they're not permitted to evade some of history's greatest tragedies because yeah, I, I think they're called like mm. pivot points or something. They say oh these things are are too yeah. dramatic for you to change. Otherwise, it will like rip yeah. the fabric of space time asunder. Yeah, my point being is that uh, to film history, The Wizard of Oz is mm. one of those. It's such a significant film in terms of its influence. It actually wasn't a hit when it came out. It took many years to actually turn a profit, but once it did, it was absolutely deified. I think, put on a giant pedestal. People grew up with it, rewatched it over and over again. I think there was a time when it was considered like the most watched movie ever. Yeah, like yeah. just more people had seen the Wizard of Oz than the other. I don't know how they made that measurement, but that's what it was called. Uh, it is. You, you can find its influence in everything from the works of David Lynch to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You can find uh, references to it 
everywhere. Its storytelling structure, which it didn't invent but codified, is still used today in a wide variety of cinema and a wide variety of genres. The imagery has been permanently emblazoned into our brain to the point where that's just what witches look like right. to a lot of people. You know, like, so The Wizard of Oz is so historically significant that the only thing I think that could prevent it from being on a list like this is twofold. One, if something about it had aged absolutely horribly. For example, Gone with the Wind is spectacularly mm -hmm. racist. This was something a lot of people were eager to overlook in 1939. And nowadays, well, no one can well, escape I'm, it. It's just like, holy shit. I wasn't going to say they, they could overlook it. it. They just accepted it. They, it was it was something they cheered on. You know, something they wanted in 1939. That's far yeah. more accurate. That's far more accurate. Racism was far more open and was not considered something that was to a film's detriment by a lot of people. There were people protesting it in 1939 when it came out. But a lot of people, white people, were very <laughs> eager to overlook that and not consider the protests yeah, yeah. and just say they liked it. Wizard of Oz doesn't really have a lot like that. It actually is pretty pristine, all things considered. It still plays very, very well. The only other thing that could keep it off of a list is if you had a rule like mine that you weren't going to include any films that were retroactively rated mm. G. Uh, if I included films that were retroactively rated G, this would probably be a okay. number one. Uh, because it is, not only is it a great movie, it is uh, kind of the pinnacle of family filmmaking in a lot of ways. I wonder, though, if they re-rated this again today, if this wouldn't get a PG. Because the Flying Monkeys are creepy, a lot of people don't like mm. that. The Fields of Opium Poppies might raise a few eyebrows. Uh, there's a scene where uh, the, uh, the Scarecrow has a gun that people tend to forget well, about, which I feel like some people would probably make a big deal out of for no good reason. He holds it. He doesn't fire uh, the pistol, though. He's just holding it. I know. I'm just saying these are little things, though, that I feel like would add yeah. up and make them want to give it a PG. Mm. But who knows? In any case, uh, great pick. Can't really argue it. Uh, yeah, that's the frustrating thing about I'm The Wizard pick, of Oz. Like, yeah. the, the discussions aren't going to be very interesting because you, you kind of can't refute it. It just is. It's hard to come up with new things to say about The Wizard of Oz. That is entirely true. And yet we cannot deny it its place either. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I feel like that's the danger sometimes we have when we talk about classic cinema like Wizard of Oz or Casablanca or The Exorcist or whatever. These films that are like kind of permanently emblazoned on best of mm -hmm. lists. People start taking them for granted and they start saying like, oh, they're not that great. I'm like, no, they are actually. It's just we can only like enthusiastically uh uh rave about them so much before we just run out of things yeah, to say yeah, and, and and after a while they don't get necessarily the enthusiasm that they rightfully deserve mm -hmm. i think so we have to re-up it every once in a while we have to we have to keep reminding people no that there's a reason the wizard the wizard of oz really is just that great yeah it, it, um, it, um, there's anything that's been said has already been written you know what it is just watch it uh, another movie, uh, should we, hmm, now let's, let's move away from the kids stuff. I got a few other kids movies, right. but I'll, I'll save them for later. Um, uh, a movie that I was a little surprised to learn how to G rating, not because it's, uh, dark in any way or creepy mm -hmm. or, uh, or even more, more or less violent than any other G rated movie of its ilk. Uh, but because the rest of the films in the franchise were not, hmm. 
so I'm going to pick one of the funniest movie comedy sequels on record, and that is The Return of the Pink Panther. I was rated G, no kidding. Turns out it was All rated right. G. I was as surprised as anyone else. But and to the best of my knowledge, uh, none of the other Pink Panther movies were rated G. But, um, yeah, Return of the Pink Panther. It's the fourth movie uh, in the Pink Panther series. Uh, it's after uh, the original Pink Panther, which... Uh, was about the theft of a fabulous jewel. And if you look really closely at the jewel in the center, there's like a pink blemish that looks like a panther. Uh, that was the film that introduced in, uh, Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau. However, he was not the main character. He was a supporting character in that film behind David Niven, a uh, uh, very dashing movie mm -hmm. star who played a uh, fabulous and uh, very talented thief, whereas Inspector Clouseau played a bumbling detective trying to solve the crime. Clouseau was the breakout star. He was the one everyone sort of gravitated towards. So he got his own movie called A Shot in the Dark, which is one of the funniest movies ever made, one of the funniest sequels which ever Which they made. made like four uh, months after the original. Like they really rushed it into production. Yeah, they came out like within a year yeah. of the original film. Like they knew what they had. They needed to strike while the iron was hot. Unfortunately, that led to a third film called Inspector Clouseau, in which... Peter Sellers did not return as the title character uh, and said they replaced him with Alan Arkin, who is a very funny actor and he's funny in a very different way than Peter Sellers. And that movie is honestly a, like a slog to mm. sit through. Like, it's just not funny. I it's, I've seen worse, but it's not, a, I've seen worse in the pink Panther series, but it's not mm. funny. And then finally 1975 rolls around and they took a pretty long break. Uh, I think it had been seven years since the previous film. And they finally got uh, uh, Peter Sellers to return mm -hmm. with Blake Edwards uh, for a proper sequel to the original film in which, once again, the Pink Panther is stolen. Uh, this time it's stolen by a thief who has decided to frame the thief from the original movie, The Phantom, mm -hmm. uh, who in this film is played by Christopher Plummer, who has a much more... Um, macho sexuality than david niven and i love him in this movie i think he's having a really good time uh and uh they decide to enlist in order to solve the crime the guy who solved it last time sort of if you half remember the first movie <laughs> uh and so they get inspector clouseau who had recently been demoted to a beat cop and has tons of great funny adventures uh and he runs off and investigates the crime uh gets the crap kicked out of him by his uh, by his sidekick. Uh, tries to seduce ladies, ends up making an ass out of himself, constantly falling over in, in unbelievably ridiculous ways, and infuriating uh, his boss, Inspector Dreyfus, uh, played by the great Herbert Lom, to the point that Herbert Lom, I believe, is committed to a mental institution at the end of this movie. And I think in the following film, he becomes like a supervillain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because... Uh, uh, Clouseau is just such an idiot and everyone praises him for it um, The Return of the Pink Panther is the film that I, it, ironically I think solidified the formula it's the fourth film in the series it like it solidified this is what a Pink Panther movie uh, truly is it's got all of the elements uh, put together and mm. it's a hoot <laughs> all of the Peter Sellers movies in this series are very very funny uh, they get less funny as time goes on, but all the ones where mm. he was actually actively involved in making it, not the trail of the Pink Panther where they just reused unused footage from the previous films, 
all the ones where he was actively involved in making it are very, very funny. He keeps repeating the same gags in completely different ways. There's a recurring gag throughout the films where uh, he manages to fall and hurt himself on a large globe. <laughs> right. And every single time they do that, it's the funniest damn thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, I know, I love this movie, The Pieces. I know you like the Pink Panther movies. Um, is this, is, do you think this is one of the well, better ones, or do you think it's the happens to be the No, no, the, this is actually kind of where the, the series crested. Uh, the Pink Panther is good. A Shot in the Dark is hilarious. Inspector Clouseau, it dips a little bit, just because that's not Peter Sellers. But when you get to The Return of the Pink Panther mm-hmm. and the next film, which was The Pink Panther Strikes Again, those two are amazing. And it's where the, the comedy has just reached a fever pitch. Uh, Blake Edwards has really managed to bring out a certain kind of uh, just zany madness uh, that had always been kind of undercutting all of this. It it goes from something a little bit more mannered into something just bold-facedly slapstick. Um, After Return of the Pink Panther and the Pink Panther Strikes Again, they started to dip real fast. And then you get things like Trail of the Pink Panther and Mm. Curse of the Pink Panther. Uh, Yeah, those... Trail of the Pink Panther was so bad it got sued and and mm-hmm. won. Uh, L- yeah, Lin- Peter Sellers' yeah, estate Lin- was Lin- mad that they reused old footage uh, as if it was a new yeah. movie. And uh, they were correct to do so because that's fucked up and the movie that they made out of it was just, it's just yeah, junk. Yeah. That movie is junk. Uh, Curse of the Pink Panther is... Also junk, except for a funny cameo by Roger Moore at the end. That's actually pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, uh, then they had Son of the Pink Panther with Roberto yeah, Benigni, which, was which that was in the nineties. That, that was many years later. It, it isn't quite as bad as people remember it being, but I think one of the reasons why I think that is because coming after Trail and Curse, mm-hmm. anything would be an improvement. Oh. I saw uh, a lot of the Pink Panther movies when I was a little kid, and when Son of the Pink Panther came out, that was my first chance to see something on the big screen. And I had yeah. also, I think I was already familiar with Roberto Benini through, um, was Johnny Stacchino before or after this? That's a good question, and that movie is one of the funniest movies yeah, Johnny, ever, and I'm glad you brought uh, it up. Johnny Stacchino uh, is, is a really hilarious Italian comedy film uh, from Roberto Benini. Uh, where it, it's it's a mistaken identity comedy where it turns out this foolish character played by Roberto Benigni just happens to look exactly like a gangster and the gangster tries to to switch places with him and uh, and well he, he doesn't try to switch places he tries to like get other gangsters to think that this hapless boob is really him so that they will kill him and he can just walk away scot free after ratting them out to the you. cops. Uh, and the guy goes the entire movie without knowing what's going on and his misunderstandings. There's a bit with a banana that is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen in a movie. Like, absolutely, the way that this banana joke escalates mm. from, like, one of the first scenes in the movie to a scene at an opera that is just unbelievably absurd. <laughs> uh, I, I I love it to pieces. So, uh, for, to clarify, Son of the Pink Panther did come out after Johnny okay. Stacchino. It came out in Italy in '91. It was released in America in '92. So there's a really good. Okay, it's entirely first. it's possible. Either way, I, I, one made one made me a fan of uh, Roberto Benigni, and I was familiar with his yeah. other films because of the first one. Uh, but I don't remember the order in which they came. 
Uh, that said, I think he was just a very funny guy, and it's 1993. I think I was in high, I was in high school at the time, and it's like, yeah, this is this is pretty amusing, and so I liked Son of the Pink Panther. I, I will come to its defense mm-hmm. as as well as mm-hmm. that first um, Steve Martin remake. Uh, that's that first one's that, really it's, good. It's not really good. It's merely good. But what I think, um, no, I'd say it's really good. I think I think it's a genuinely funny mm-hmm. comedy that works on its own terms. It's a slightly different version of Clouseau, but mm-hmm. I think that but, one works on its own terms enough that I would call it not great, I, but a really good effective yeah, what, comedy. I laugh. What a lot I appreciate about the the two thousands Pink Panther movies is uh, they actually do something rather decisive that the Peter Sellers films never actually did, and that was asking whether or not Clouseau is a good detective. Uh, Peter Sellers tended Mm -hmm. to catch the bad guy, but it was always completely by accident. He was so clueless that he just kind of lucked into, like he fell over at just the right moment and tripped a bad guy and that he got credit for apprehending him. What I appreciate about the Steve Martin films is he behaves weird and he's got a lot of strange investigative mannerisms and he can't pronounce words very well. That's one of the gags of the movie. He has this very, very strange French accent that isn't from anywhere in France. Uh, yeah, it prevents him from saying the word hamburger. Yeah, that, that's one of the jokes is he can't say, he has, he can't say the word hamburger. Uh, but by the end of the film, we learn that Clouseau is actually incredibly capable and very observant and a very good detective. So he actually has this kind of Columbo quality. Nobody expects him to be good, but he yeah. is. And I really appreciate that about those movies. I, it, yeah, it's a different yeah, yeah. take. It's a different take, but it's a good take. It's just, it's just a very different vibe. God, I wonder when they're going to reboot that again and who the hell they're going to get. Um, it's only a matter of time before they do another Pink Panther, and I just, I, I wonder. Who they've been looking be. around. I know that um, David Silverman, one of the Simpsons guys, was going to do a, a, a Pink Panther movie, but that was probably a couple of years ago. I'm not sure what what uh, what the, the current state of the Pink Panther reboot reboot is. Yeah, I don't know. Well, in any case, what's your next pick? What's well, I'm going to choose an. I'll, I will also choose a madcap comedy to match yours, and this is one of the finest madcap comedies that ever is. In fact, this is the most madcap comedy there ever was. Is it? Is it a mad, 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 madcap uh, it, comedy? It is that many mads. It's it's a mad, 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 mad world, and golly, this movie will make you feel like you're insane. <laughs> um, yeah, there is. No film as insane as this one. Uh, no, no comedy, I guess, as insane as this one. This is mm-hmm. a, a it's a race film. Mm-hmm. The original cut of the film was three hours and twenty two minutes. It has a cast <laughs> of eight hundred thousand people, and it is about uh, it, it has a cast of uh, like just about every working comedian who was big in nineteen sixty three when it came out. So it has a uh, Milton Berle and Sid Caesar and and Buddy Hackett and Mickey Rooney. Ethel Merman is in it. Uh, Phil Silvers is in it. Terry Thomas is in it. Jonathan Winters is in it. Uh, um, I said Phil Silvers. Uh, and it starts with yeah. it starts with uh, Jimmy Durante crashing his car. He falls off the road, mm. and a few cars uh, carrying some of these famous comedians rush out to help him, and he's laying there dying. And he says his dying, uh, his dying words is, I, I, I had a bunch of money and it was buried several states away under a big W. And then he literally kicks the bucket. There's a bucket by his foot and he kicks it. <laughs> and 
all of the people slowly back away from this this corpse. <laughs> they say, well, that was really sad. And they're all such terrible people that they immediately run to their cars and start racing one another to the site of where that money is hidden. And it's it's it seems like a little amount. It's like three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, which is I'd have to look up the, the actual adjustment. Probably several million today. I'm yeah. sure it'd be a lot. Yeah. Uh, and for the next three hours, you will be pushed into a neon cuckoo clock that is exploding <laughs> with comedy and energy. And like, it does not stop. It does not lay up. Uh, there's this rule in, in film where uh, you have to kind of modulate your, your scenes from scene to scene. You have to give them high moments and low moments. There have to be moments where you have to kind of take a breath. Uh, an action film can't be all action. A comedy film can't be all comedy. Uh, Stanley Kramer, who directed this, clearly does not care about that rule. He is going to have every <laughs> single scene be at just as fevered a pitch as the one that came before it. Everybody is constantly screaming. It is shrill. It is almost difficult to take how much energy and comedy there is in this movie. Uh, and yeah, as the film goes on, people fall into different cars. People drive into rivers. People team up. People get into planes. Every single chase movie... Uh, that you've probably heard of, probably took a lot of its cues from its mad, 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 mad world. Uh, and yeah. it essentially invented a subgenre that we sadly we don't see a lot of anymore. But this idea of the all-celebrity cross-country chase became a thing for a little while. And Yeah, we had the Cannonball yeah, Run, and we had the $8 million mystery. I yeah, the, the million one. Dollar. Rat Race was a great example. That's actually really uh, good. Rat Race is good. I like Rat Race. Uh, Rat Race, I think, was the most recent example, and that was like 20 years ago at this point. But yeah, Rat Race... Uh, We've had a couple of like cross-country chase-type movies. Sometimes people try to take them super seriously. We covered, on Cancel Too Soon, we covered an all-star cross-country chase uh, television series called yeah, Drive. Yeah, yeah. That only lasted half a season, which was actually pretty quite good. good. We, there's been movies like um, Need for Speed, yeah. but those, yeah, those are more like derived a little bit more from the Fast and the Furious. So it's more about the cars and fastness, and it's a little bit more serious in action. Uh, but the, I think I think the structure works either way, and I think the thing that makes the it's a mad, 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 mad world uh, amazing isn't the fact that it has a big ensemble cast. Movies that had big ensemble cast before, some to great effect, some to very poor effect. Um, it's the snowball effect. Yeah. You know, we've all seen a cartoon where someone like drops a snowball at the top of a hill and by the time it reaches the bottom of the hill, it's like large enough to like roll up Sylvester the cat altogether. Uh it's a mad 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 world it takes a snowball like I don't know, the size of a marble and it drops it at the very peak of Mount Everest. <laughs> And it doesn't just get bigger and bigger and bigger. It just starts enveloping everyone in its path because it starts off with like a couple of cars full of people competing to get this money. Mm. Every single person they run into by accident or on purpose, they tell about the money they find out. And then they too are all of a sudden dropping everything in their lives to be part of a giant cross country chase. And they will break things. They will destroy things. They will steal things. They will burn down buildings. There's a great bit where as Jonathan Winters at a gas station where he just turns into like the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> and right. just destroys he, he everything. He destroys the gas it's, station. It's, it's great. 
It, that whole movie is funny. That's my favorite. I die laughing every time I see Jonathan Winters is the un. <laughs> Phil Silvers might be considered the MVP for a lot of people. For me, it's Jonathan Winters. He's the MVP of this movie. Well, um, it's so gigantic at the end. It starts off kind of small, and it ends so gigantically that it's almost hard to imagine how we just got mm. here. And that's something that I think is. It's one of my favorite things to see in movies, that level of escalation. I love it in horror movies. I, I love it in the movie Needful Things, where one guy opens an antique shop in New England, and then by the end of the movie, that one little impetus, everyone's rioting and murdering each other in town, and like I don't remember how exactly we got here, but it made sense at the time. Like It's that level of madness, mm. but it's it's purely comedic here. This is indeed one of the funniest movies ever made. I yeah, love movies. Yeah, that... I, I will be impressed if I, before the end of my life, manage to see a film that is is a, a comedy bigger than this. This is the biggest comedy imaginable. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I can't think of a bigger, certainly not a more successful big comedy yeah, yeah, ever. Yeah. But my next pick is a film that I would actually might argue is, well, not bigger than It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Might be at least as funny. Okay. And that's, and that's no small thing. Go feat. on. What's up, Doc? Oh, what's up, Doc? Is on my list. Hey, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm glad we. I'm glad we had some crossover here, considering we had different criteria. Uh, what's up, Doc? Is a film from Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, we covered it not that long ago on Critically Reclaimed. I think we covered it like um, during the middle of the lockdown, mm. and um, it stars uh, Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill uh, in the 1970s was a heartthrob. Mm. And in this movie, he plays uh, an absolute dweeb. Uh, he is uh, very, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, very meek, very mild-mannered. And he is being uh, basically uh, domineered by his fiance, played Madeline by Madeline Kahn, Kahn yeah, yeah. in her breakout role. And uh He's at a convention where he's going to try to get money for a research project he's doing. He's just, he's researching musical rocks. These rocks have specific tonalities. I think there's something to it, and I'm trying to get money for it. So he's got people to impress. That's always a good start for any screwball comedy. Along the way, he runs into Barbara Streisand. <laughs> at the height of her Barbara Streisandiestness. <laughs> That's right, right? Barbara Streisand, of course, was uh, a famous singer and uh, an Academy Award winner. Well, hold on. I realize how this sounds. Uh, Barbara Streisand She was, was already a, a famous singer. Uh, Barbara Streisand was already a famous singer. She'd already won you know, an Academy Jesus Award. Jesus Christ gave us. I don't think anyone once. knew she could be this funny. <laughs> Shut up. First off, I, Barbara would love that you made that comparison, by the way. Uh, so, but no, my point is this. People knew her as a singer and as a performer, and they knew she could be funny. Funny Girl is a oh, funny yeah. movie. This is a different level of funny. This is, like, all-time classic funny. And she is here, much like uh, Catherine Hepburn was to Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby, uh, she is here to destroy Ryan O'Neill's life as he mm. knows it and build it up into something better. And along the way, uh, he is humiliated uh his marriage his his uh uh relationship with madeline khan is destroyed his career is destroyed his body is destroyed everything about him is absolutely obliterated over the course of this film and it is always funny 
there's a there's a weird subplot where a whole bunch of people have satchels that look exactly like each other, except two of them have like wildly valuable things. One of them is filled with valuable jewels. The other one is filled with like stolen government secrets. And everyone is trying to steal each other's cases, and everyone's getting the wrong case all the time. Uh, and that that sounds kind of academic. I see how that can be funny. You have no idea how funny that can be. You have no idea whatsoever. Um, I was actually surprised, however, to discover that this film was rated G because basically there's a sex scene in it. Like there's a scene where uh, Barbara Streisand seduces Ryan O'Neill over a piano, mm-hmm. and it is very erotically charged. Uh, there isn't like a lot of like fornicating on camera, but there's a lot of innuendo. Yeah, yeah. And afterwards, they are naked together, and I feel like that wouldn't get a no. G it, it definitely wouldn't. In uh, fact, uh, no. To, to, we've brought it up before, but you know, the Kirby Dick's documentary. This film is not yet rated. Uh, they actually lay out what some of the rules uh, about sex and sexuality have become in the MPAA over the years, and how, uh, like, very they're very specific about what type of sex and sex acts can and cannot be seen on a on camera. Yeah. And yeah, I think like being nude in bed together instantly as PG. Uh, yeah, I, I know that, and I get it. That, that I don't even disagree with that. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that What's Up Doc just probably wouldn't yeah, make it I, today. But at the time, it was considered just such a lark. I guess they figured it was insubstantial and no one could possibly be offended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was. I spent my entire life not watching this movie. I didn't see this movie until I was like what thirty eight, uh-huh. thirty nine, and I was mad. <laughs> I was mad at the people in my life who had told me to see What's Up Doc. And didn't emphasize it enough. So if Alonzo Duralde is listening to this right now, (laughs) I blame you. No, I'm kidding. Alonzo Duralde is one of the many people who have talked about how brilliant this movie is. Mm. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I was excited to see it in the first place. But it is one of those movies where, like, you know, it's it's a classic. Everyone keeps telling you it's great. And you don't get around to it. And then you finally do. And you realize this was missing from my life. Where have you been all my life? Yeah, What's it, up, Doc? You've been there the whole fucking it, it time. It is so, so, so if you've never funny. seen it, please do. It's one of the funniest movies ever made. I don't say that lightly, yeah. uh, and I, it belongs up there on a pedestal with films like it's a Mad Mad yeah, Mad yeah. Mad. Well, that that one was also on my list. So uh, if if uh, you want to go again, I guess you can. Uh, sure. Why not? Um, let's do another comedy, and this one is actually a very unusual comedy. It is the debut film from a filmmaker who would not be known for comedy it is john carpenter's dark star oh i didn't know that was rated g that, that sort of somehow slipped my attention uh, yeah rated um, g it's yeah. another one where it's it's got some dark elements to it and it feels like today it probably wouldn't be but at the time john carpenter's debut feature a sci-fi film called dark star uh which was uh written or i believe co-written uh by Dan, yeah, it was co-written by Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon, who would go on to use some of the elements of this story uh, in a script he had called Star Beast, mm-hmm. which would eventually be produced and released under a more famous title, Alien. Yeah, in fact, uh, I, I read an interview with Dan O'Bannon. He said that he liked writing Dark Star. He liked that there's, there's an alien in Dark Star. And the joke mm-hmm. about the alien is that it's a beach ball. It's a sphere with little feet. With feet. Uh, and... It had, yeah, it's a ridiculous looking creature. Uh, and that's that's the joke. You know, it's time to feed the alien. Oh gosh, this ridiculous looking thing. Uh, and so his idea was, 
what if it wasn't a beach ball? What if it like looks like a monster? What if it was actually like kind of cool looking? Yeah. And you know, famously, uh, filmmaker Ridley Scott hired a Swiss surrealist named H.R. Giger to come up with this really twisted fucking looking creature, and uh, it's one of the most famous yeah. monsters in movie history now. Uh, Dark Star started off as a student film, and it was turned out so good, uh, they got some extra money together to turn it into a feature, and the idea is this. Space travel, uh, long glamorized in one film after another as something that was either uh, absolutely incredible to look at in the 2001 A Space Odyssey sense, uh, or, you know, would be exciting and fun and your Rocky Joneses or your Forbidden Planets, you know, it's going to be a lot of cool adventure to get to out there in space. Mm. Star Trek, go get it. Dark Star suggests that space travel would suck and not just be difficult and scary in that spacey kind of way. Uh, it would be like being trapped in a tin can with a bunch of assholes. So it's a bunch of dudes locked in, in a room together and they don't bathe. Yeah, and they hate each other. One of the jokes is that uh, there was an there was an accident like earlier in their mission. They were on like a twenty year mission, so they're out there, they're stuck forever. And one of the first things that happened was they lost all their toilet paper in an accident. It got sucked out into space, <laughs> so they haven't had toilet paper this entire time. Which that would that's enough, honestly. That would drive me up the wall no matter what. Uh, their only job is to find unstable planets, planets that are not uh, safe for human colonization, uh, planets that might eventually blow up or crumble and send debris everywhere and endanger people, and blow them up. Mm -hmm. That's it. All they do is blow up planets. And it is boring, shitty, monotonous, bureaucratic work. They are desperately trying to find ways to maintain their sanity, uh, one of the guys is, like, doing target practice in the middle of the hallways, even though it's incredibly dangerous. Another guy refuses to leave the observation deck because he's just basically completely spaced out, literally. Um, and uh, another guy is, like, trying to find some solace in this alien that they picked up, but the alien tries to murder him. Uh, and then eventually it all goes to hell when one of the bombs that they were using to destroy a planet <laughs> gets stuck and can't be released. And the bomb is artificially intelligent and knows that its purpose is to blow mm. up and is going to blow up the ship. And their only hope is to teach the bomb philosophy fast enough that it can appreciate its existence and not want to accomplish the only purpose well, the, for its creation. Yeah, the, uh, the, the issue is uh, the, the, the bomb is stuck. It's going to go off. And they say you can't go off. And the bomb argues that's my function. That's the only thing I exist for. Mm -hmm. And he starts to say, well, you don't have to do what you exist for. And they start having this like, yeah, really deep conversation about the nature of existence. It, it's yeah, really it, great. It's, it's a it's, fun, it's, it's a fun smart, moment. It's funny. I, uh, yeah. I, I like that scene more than I like the rest of dark star. I think uh, it, it might have been okay. much better as a short. It feels very much like a student film. There's a lot of meandering going around. Uh, I I feel mm -hmm. like John Carpenter as a filmmaker uh, does have a very canny sense of craft. Uh, 
he's I think he's uh, more artistic a filmmaker than even he would admit to uh, in, in interviews. He's always very you know down to earth about, oh, you just make a movie and you shoot it and it's done and uh, you know, whatever. I like it. I'm just going to play video games and smoke weed now. Um <laughs> I'm going to smoke eight cigarettes and, uh, you know, he, he's doing his music now, but he has, mm-hmm. he has no pretense to being an artist. Uh, and I feel like dark star was just like him and his friends kind of fucking around. They're not having, uh, and any kind of serious conversations. And then they get to the end and it's, it feels very much like a stoner film where it's just very, mm-hmm. very unfocused. Uh, so it's not my favorite John Carpenter. I appreciate that you put it on this list that you found a John Carpenter film to include on a list of G-rated movies. <laughs> I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll say this right now. I don't disagree with most of your points. Uh-huh. I think this is definitely the work of a very young filmmaker who is kind of just fucking around and throwing ideas at a wall. Hmm. Uh, I, what I miss, however, is films, in particular like sci-fi and genre films, that feel like student films. I kind of miss this, like, putting it, put, having, uh, creating cinema that relies on its ideas more than flashy imagery or fancy craft. Mm. Dark Star is a film that is about we got really high and we had a bunch of ideas. What if space travel sucked? Yeah. What if there were all of these different things that were wrong with the ship? What if you had to, what if we, you know, weapons technology evolved so rapidly, which it already has in our lifetimes at the time, um, and evolved so rapidly that we ended up having to have conversations with it just so it wouldn't kill Mm. us. Like, there's so many fun, big ideas here that the student film zeal, this unmistakable youthful zeal Mm. to make a film to prove yourself to basically try to make a small budget feel like a lot to try to coast on big ideas rather than hide behind flash and circumstance um is an aesthetic that i really love and so i think dark star is i mean it's it's far less polished than any other john carpenter movie obviously uh but I don't know. I, I, it's the, a kind of inspiration that I don't always see from John Carpenter, even in movies that I like. I think his best films have this sense of, I had a mad dash of inspiration, and I was at a Denny's late at night, and I had just done a lot of speed, and I just wrote it all down, and we just decided to make a movie out of, mm. you know, Prince of Darkness, or Big Trouble in Little China. Boom, made all the ideas. And then sometimes he'll do stuff like Village of the Dan, which just doesn't come together. This feels like the impetus. And I love seeing films, early films from great filmmakers that showed so much promise Uh and doesn't have anything restraining it except budget. Yeah, well... And I kind of love that. I I love to see him push against what was possible for Mm -hmm. him at the time. I I typically like to see a movie stumble a little bit in service mm-hmm. of like enthusiasm or great ideas than a, a, mm. a confident movie that doesn't have ambition. Um, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> that, that said, uh, and, and it's true. You don't see a lot of these kinds of uh, ambitious student level stoner films in theaters anymore. Usually those things are just sort of distributed on YouTube. Um, 
The yeah. last time I got that thrill from a theater was when I saw um, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, which, you know, staggers over itself to put yeah. in a lot of interesting ideas. But golly, all of those interesting ideas make it really, really fascinating. Yeah, it has a very similar mm. vibe. Yeah, I give you that. Yeah. And that and I think mm. that vibe is something that we I long for. I think Star Wars had that. The, yeah, yeah. It wasn't his first film, but like it has this sort of I'm trying to do everything. Yeah, there, there's. I'm trying to put it all on the, the screen. The special you know? effects in Star Wars are excellent, but what I what I like about that movie is it has thumbprints all over it. It's a you know it's there are scenes where it looks like it's being held together with masking tape, and that kind of quality is something I really appreciate. When they started making all the sequels and they started making them really slick looking, they became a lot less interesting to look at for me. That's just my personal taste. Um, yeah, so Dar- I think John Carpenter though, unlike. Uh, George Lucas or the Star Wars movies, uh, his movies were slick. They were well put together, but he did, did still have something of a scrappy quality to a lot of his films, especially those early movies. Look at something like Assault on Precinct 13 mm-hmm. as well, especially Halloween. Halloween is very much a seat of your pants kind of movie, very low budget. Um, sure. So yeah. he still ha- I think maybe that's why I'm, I'm so drawn to his movies. He still has a lot of that. Uh, handmade quality to a lot of his films, even when he d- was doing bigger studio films, he wasn't getting a budgets. Uh, you, you look at some of his later films, like Ghosts of Mars, and the, like, clearly he doesn't have a lot of money to make that. Uh, so uh, I feel like there there wasn't that same issue. I feel like if you're gonna go to a nice scrappy John Carpenter movie, uh, m- most of his will do. Uh, but to your point, none of them are rated G. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's your uh, next let's pick? Let's see. You wanted to do sort of like uh, an auteur movie. Let's see what I got here. Um, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll do a, a science fiction movie. Because uh, you did okay. a science fiction movie. It takes place in space. I'm going to do a movie that takes place partially in space. Uh, it's mm. really good, heady sci-fi concept. Uh, it takes place in the distant future. Spends some time on a spaceship, but mostly it takes place on the planet of the apes. And it's called the planet of the apes. Actually, it's just called... Oh, I thought you were going to go with Conquest of the Planet No, of that's the rated apes. PG. Uh, no, Conquest is... No, PG, Conquest was the one that was rated PG. Because uh, oh, Conquest okay. is the one where they murder all the humans. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, what I find so tragic about Conquest of the Planet of the Apes is uh, Conquest was the fourth film, and that takes place in the near f- the near future from our cur- from the present day, and uh, it was about the yeah. rise of a new uh, ape character uh, who ended up calling himself Caesar, and it takes place in a world where cats and dogs have all died out because of a mysterious plague, so people have decided to make apes their pets. But also the apes are being trained to do, like, menial tasks around the house. So they're essentially being turned into human slaves. Uh, But they are just apes. And the tragedy is that Caesar sees this. He is an ape, but he's intelligent. He's more intelligent than the humans around him. Well, because he's the child of two apes from the distant future that had evolved intelligence. Yeah, so he... Uh, because in the previous film, there was a time travel thing. So he's hiding out amongst so he's, the other He's apes. hiding out amongst the other apes, and uh, he doesn't like the indignity that the apes are suffering. Now, those apes aren't intelligent, but he's training them to use guns. 
So there is a, a delightfully yeah. crazy scene at the end where just the apes are rioting and they're gunning down humans, but they're just apes. Uh, so I don't see that as really a triumph. It's just sort of monkey chaos at that point. Uh, and <laughs> but It's not called Triumph of the Apes. It is not. It, yeah, Conquest of the Planet. And so... It's, yeah, it's, a different it's presented thing. It's a as different this kind thing. of like revolutionary moment. The apes are taking it back, but the apes don't know what they're doing for Caesar any more than they knew what they were doing for the humans. They're just they've they're just serving a different master. Just now they're firing guns, uh, but that's neither. Eh, it still makes more sense than 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 the than the new trilogy. Uh, well, uh, we won't get into those, but uh, we will go back to 1968 yeah. and actually look at the original Planet of the Apes, which is one of the great sci-fi movies. Uh, partly because it's a little bit heady, it's a little bit cerebral, but at the same time, it is equally absurd. And that's what I really appreciate about Planet of the Apes. Um, it takes place uh, in the fu- near future. And there are some astronauts on board a spaceship. And they've been on board this spaceship for a long, long time. And they say, we're going to go into cryostasis and we're going to keep on flying. By the time we get back to Earth, many, many years will have passed just because we're, we're traveling so fast. Uh, then there's an accident. They start accelerating and they all, uh, they all pass out in cryosleep. And they wake up and it is now... And they're crashing into a planet. And it's now impossibly far in the future. They actually don't really know how far it is. There's a gauge in the movie that says what year it is, but I I prefer to think that that was unreliable, that it's not 3978. It's, it's even further in the future than that. And the great thing about planet of the apes is it actually is this wonderful slow burn. The entire first like 30 minutes of this movie, there aren't any apes. Mm -hmm. It's just these, uh, this trio of astronauts kind of trying to survive. They get out of this ship. They wander across the barren wasteland, uh, they encounter yeah. other humans, but the other humans are, they don't speak and they're wearing like animal skins. They look like cavemen. And it's not yeah. until about 30 minutes into the movie that this really eerie trumpet blast uh, plays. And we see that there are apes on horseback and your mind is fucking blown, dude. Uh, <laughs> they, they really do. It's the, the thing is, is that when he lands on the planet of the apes, Mm-hmm. When they do, uh, they don't just jump to the apes. We know we saw the title of the oh. movie. We know the apes yeah, yeah. are coming, but we want it to feel like the surprise it should be. And if you jump to the apes too quickly, okay, we're on Planet of the Apes, I guess. We'll, we'll get used to that. But like, you give them just enough time to think they get an idea of where they are only to then reveal the apes. And the apes are a big, giant reveal, and it's a huge action sequence, and people are murdered, and it is yeah. scary. It's actually really scary. I, yeah. And I feel like uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the newer apes films forgot something that's really fundamental to Planet of the Apes, and that Planet of the Apes is is a social satire. It was it was co-written yeah. by Rod Serling, so it's, it's gonna be. And the idea of watching <laughs> apes behave as humans and getting a little bit of an off kilter surreal thrill from seeing that is part of the appeal. And it's part of an examination of human behaviors. What if apes behaved this way? And what are we, what are we using apes to say about the human condition? And of course they're talking about, uh, there's a lot of, uh, race metaphors. There's a lot of racism metaphors throughout uh, planet of the apes uh, about how there's now going to be, 
upper and lower class citizens and how do you relate to, or it could just be about the nature of intelligence how do you relate to something that you previously assumed was not intelligent but is it definitely helps that the uh the makeup for this movie was really groundbreaking at the time and still looks good today. Uh, it, it was like yeah. too. It's solid. It, it's like it, we, it's definitely improved mm. since, but this is very respectable. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's pretty simple by today's standards. There's like two appliances, one on the lower jaw and one on the upper jaw. So the ape jaw would kind of move. The lips don't move. The The human mouth is inside, mm-hmm. uh, but it does seem articulated and, and it looks really, really cool. Uh, when you go to some of these newer ones, uh, the the special effects are really, really advanced. They're using like motion capture and, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes has some of the best special effects really in any movie to date. Like it's just impeccable in that one. Uh, but I feel like in taking the myth so deadly seriously in those new movies, they're so downbeat and they're very, very uh, like terse dramas, they're kind of missing out on yeah. that satirical aspect. They're, we're not getting any kind of metaphor or message from those new ones. We're just so, we're just watching a movie about how apes become intelligent. They're very mechanical. Uh, Planet of the Apes, how the apes came to be doesn't really matter in that first film. It became the central question of the whole series after. But eventually, mm-hmm. apes evolved f- uh, on this planet to be like humans. And... I think it's okay to discuss the twist ending. It's like put on the poster for goodness sake. I think we already kind of, oh, yeah, I guess it. so. <laughs> Cause we talked yeah, about pl- uh, planet of the apes is uh, the planet of the apes is it was earth all along. And there's this really uh, famous final shot. Um, I'll, if you don't haven't seen the movie. Okay. See, see the movie. Uh, but uh, I, I won't go, go beyond that. But yeah, the idea that, this is how apes came to be and this is actually like sort of a consequence of human actions and then it becomes very very clear that we have created this kind of new society and anything that might be going wrong here was actually the result of something that went very very wrong thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago uh so it 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 feels really kind of uh, like, like it actually has something on its mind. Like it's actually thinking about what it's trying to say yeah. about human behavior, about the consequences of our actions as a as a society, and how intelligent apes are uh, aping what we did long, long, long ago. Um, and that's the, there's something really kind of poignant about it. While we're getting a, a definite sense of silliness to all of this, it's really brilliant in the way it balances all of that. All of the the performance is really brilliant. Uh, I love Maurice Evans in this movie as Dr. Zayas. Uh, yeah, he's Roddy great. McDowell and Kim Hunter play the chimpanzees who will become a, uh, become the leads in later movies. Uh, and, and, and of course there's uh, Charlton Heston as lead white man. Uh, when it, when it comes to sort of like, <laughs> uh, heroic champion lead guy, uh, Charlton Heston certainly fits the bill. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's mm. kind of, almost a cliche to see him in this movie. I don't think the movie would have been better or worse with his inclusion or exclusion. I think he's just fine. Uh, but yeah, planet, planet of the apes just, just rings my bell. I really dig it. Well, uh, speaking of movies in which people enter a world where uh, everything's very strange and everything wants to kill them. Uh, let's talk about Willy Wonka and the chocolate. Factory. Oh, must we? All right. Uh, 
Well, you know, I, know, like I, lo- I like it fine. I, I'm I'm not in the cults the same way a lot of people are, though. I don't know if I call myself in a cult. I just think this is actually a very good movie. Um, and it's another one where this is actually like Wizard of Oz. Uh, it was not a hit when it came out. It gradually became a beloved classic over time because it used to be on television a mm. lot. And um, yeah, eventually people realized, wait a minute, this movie's mostly kind of wonderful, isn't it? And I grew up with it, and I think it actually is... It's of its time. I think the production design in particular and a lot of uh, different narrative elements would never be done the same way today. I think you probably wouldn't have in a G-rated movie a scene where a chicken gets its head cut Mm -hmm. off and Mm -hmm. you see it. Uh, But that happens in this movie, and for some reason the MPAA was fine with that. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is based on Roald Dahl's book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, The title was changed because the Vietnam War was going on at the time, and the word Charlie had different connotations. (laughs) And so they changed it to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, it's about a young boy named Charlie who has nothing. And everyone kind of hates him. And he, But he's a very, very sweet kid. And he fantasizes about winning a competition uh, where a bunch of children who buy chocolate from Willy Wonka, the world's greatest chocolatier, uh, might get a golden ticket, which allows them to have a rare tour of the Chocolate Factory. Now, unlike most factories... Where you would go inside and you see a bunch of grumpy people, you know, punching their time cards, doing paperwork, you know, sneezing on the conveyor belt. You know, it's just not fun stuff. Uh, This is a magical wonderland filled with delightful creatures who do musical numbers and rooms where everything is made of candy and you can eat it. And, oh, it turns out, uh, you know, the eggs you get for, for Easter... Those are laid by the golden geese, and they're here, and they're quite large. Uh, it's incredibly fanciful. It is one of the most wonderfully conceived, I think, children's stories ever. Because kids love candy. Adults do, too. But kids really love candy. And candy has this kind of magical kind of connotation. It's brightly colored. It has fanciful names. There are times throughout the year when people just give it to you when you show up at their front door. Um, It's something that's supposed to be a special treat, so you don't get it all the time. Whenever you do, it's a wonderful little reward. And so the idea that it doesn't just give you joy when you eat it, but that it comes from a joyous place full of creativity and Mm. wonder is just a wonderful childlike fantasy. And, of course, Roald Dahl, being the asshole that he was, uh, wanted to flip that around and basically turn it into a horror story. So it turns out Charlie lucks into getting one of the golden tickets just by sheer Mm. chance. Uh, All the other children, uh, for the most part, acquire it through uh, gluttony or greed or some other form of... Of sort of ill behavior, some sort uh, of behavior well, that Roald Dahl does I, not. I would argue of. that it's deadly sins, isn't it? A lot of them, yeah. Uh, and uh, when they go through the chocolate factory, they are picked off one by one in really gruesome ways, <laughs> like really horrifying. Like one of them is dropped down a garbage chute and possibly into an incinerator. Uh, one of them is squeezed through a pipe that's supposed to just carry mm. chocolate. Uh, another one is turned into a giant blueberry and they're going to have to like 
press her like fruit from a, that, that you would be like juicing. Um, it's really kind of shocking and, and, and gross. And I think that's one of the reasons why the fancifulness goes down so well is because it is tempered with the horrors that we all know of as a child. And it feels like the ultimate modern day version of Hansel and Gretel. Uh, except at the end, it turns out the witch only punishes naughty mm. children. Uh, it's also a really great adaptation because in the book, Charlie disappears as a character once the, the, the chocolate factory thing begins. Like he literally only gets a happy ending because he made it to the end without dying. Mm. Like that's it. Uh, in the movie, they decide that Charlie is also a flawed human being and also gets into an adventure at the Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory and gives him... And that, that leads to an opportunity for Charlie to not just succeed and get everything he ever wanted at the end of the movie by merely not fucking up yet, but by actually making a conscious choice to do something mm. moral. To actually... It's not just because he is cherubic by design it is because he had an opportunity to do something selfish and chose not to uh and i think that is that makes it a better adaptation in many ways than the tim burton one which is a weird yeah. film but it does some but things right, there's there's uh, it's not a complete wash i think there's some interesting stuff in that that tim burton no. movie but it's mostly pretty bad yeah it's 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 mostly bad but there's there's bits that i'll defend and uh i honestly think that you just can't find a better uh uh <laughs> i don't think there's another performance quite like gene wilder as well yeah. where he is simultaneously childlike and literally uh, yeah i was i was gonna say like, he's, i don't he's know not, how he manages he's not really he's not full of childlike wonder he's he's very mephistophelian uh he, he is a a very demonic presence in that movie he's very cruel he, he doesn't care for the children the whole uh, premise of the movie is he's taking these kids through a, a tour of his factory and the idea is if he can find a kid interested in just the right way like it's kind of a test and by the end he's going to yeah. pass his uh his factory on to a new generation he wants to retire and charlie happens to be that kid but he seems to hate kids he doesn't even seem to understand them very yeah. much like why why are you choosing a kid choose one of the oompa loompas they work hard they know how this place works <laughs> you're not wrong you're not wrong um you know I, if i were to update this today if i were to like remake uh, willy wonka and the chocolate factory and i think it, they're doing one with uh like a a prequel with timothy chalamet and i'm like mm. why what what are we gonna get out of that? I don't. I'm not sure what the point. Maybe I'll see it and I'll decide it's great. I have no idea. But if I were to remake this today, you know what change I mm. would make? I would make Charlie an artist. I would make Charlie the kind of person who is constantly coming up with new ideas for candies. And yeah, like, and that actually justifies why he would actually. It's not just about having someone to run the factory. It's not just about having a decent person running a capitalistic endeavor, which is oh. a lot, actually. And I do appreciate that theme, is that he wants a, 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 someone who isn't interested purely in financial gain to run his company. That's a lot, and I think it's important. But he shows up someone who has Willy Wonka's imagination, mm -hmm. right? That's the reason why Willy Wonka's stuff works, is because Willy Wonka is a mad genius. You need to have mm -hmm. that. And so I think that's something that's missing in both versions. But in any case, um, 
there's so much in this movie that is absolutely wonderful and maddening in just the right way. And I love it to pieces, mm-hmm. uh, messy bits yeah, and they're... all. And I will include it, even if it's a bit okay. of a uh, No, that, that's, that's fine. Um, something you didn't mention, uh, and this is sort of the part of the movie that I like the best, is everything prior to the, the Chocolate Factory. The Chocolate Factory is this weird explosion mm-hmm. of, of candy-colored goodness but it doesn't it wouldn't seem so weird if we didn't spend like a good 30 minutes of movie in this dickensian hellscape where charlie is living in yeah. poverty and his, his he has four grandparents that can't get out of bed so they're just always sleeping it's it's almost like a his teachers hate him like they yeah, hate everybody him. hates charlie and um yeah it's almost like a Monty Python yeah. sketch. Like it's it's so exaggerated in the way that the world just hates this child and doesn't want mm-hmm. him to succeed. While other people like this is what that wonderful song, the Candyman can. All the other kids are in a candy store. This guy's showering them with candy. Well, Charlie, yeah, watches. he's outside. There's, <laughs> like, there's something incredibly depressive about that, it, and. And I think any kid identifies mm. with that. Like, even if that's not, even if you're not that put upon, every kid feels put upon sometimes. And so when Charlie actually gets his golden ticket, it actually feels like, you know what? Fuck yeah, yeah he does. I, I would. He should get that golden ticket. Th- there is a version of this movie, maybe a slower French version of this movie, where <laughs> it, it's all about Charlie just getting the ticket and there's no chocolate factory stuff. It's just about how mm-hmm. how his life is really hard and sad. All of his other friends are trying to get these chocolate bars, and he has no means to get one of his own. And when he finally gets one, he just sort of, like, clutches it tight to his chest. Maybe it changes the dynamic of the people around him. Now they ingratiate themselves mm-hmm. to him. He sees their true faces. And the end of the film is him <laughs> walking into the chocolate factory. I got it, and you didn't. And then, of course... The version we got, there's an extra, you know, hour and a half where they're inside the chocolate factory and they meet Oompa Loompas and all this other weird stuff. Uh, have you read the Roald Dahl book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the sequel. The very strange Yeah, sequel. Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Um, in, yeah. in the book, uh, Willy Wonka is, is even more unhinged. He seems almost like a little bit insane. He's described that way. It's like, I think this guy's a little yeah. off. And... Gene Wilder, rather than making him into this sort of insane, scary character, turns him into a wrathful, scary character. Uh, he's he's really intimidating. Yeah. And I think that that's the brilliance of Gene Wilder is he was asked to play this kind of like fanciful chocolatier, but he's not fanciful. He's he's a terrifying dude. Um, so it, it's actually like a lot of the darkness in the movie that I, that I kind of respond to. The the joy of I, eating candy is, is fun because there's like actual footage of real candy. The scene where all of the kids are going yeah. through like this candy laden Garden of Eden and they're just wandering around and like picking things off of bushes. Yeah. Everything is just made of candy. That scene is, you know, makes me hungry uh, for candy. But yeah, the rest of the stuff about like the kids meeting their comeuppance, uh, it's it's pretty good. Charlie, I think, is a bit of a wet blanket. The the actor they got to play him is a little boring. Um, so by the end, it's like, oh, Charlie, you That's got a reward. It's like, yeah. yeah, well, what did he do? Nothing. He's a boring kid. But there, there's a lot I like about that. You movie. know what? You know what? That's that's enough. I think someone who didn't make the world worse. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. Um, but in any case, let's move on. What's your next? Uh, one? Well, I also have a, f- a film about food, about eating. Uh, I have uh, the 1987 film Babette's Feast on my list. 
Oh, I didn't realize it was rated oh, yeah, G. Yeah, okay. like it was submitted to the ratings board, and it came back with a G rating. Um, it's a Danish film, though, so I know film ratings are a little bit different. It probably has a different rating in Denmark, uh, but here in the United States, it was given a G rating. And fine, show kids this movie because it's about generosity. Uh, this is about a, a very remote enclave way out in uh, 19th century Denmark. Uh, it's this te- little teeny tiny village, and there's this uh, little group of sisters. Uh, or, or there's there's two sisters, uh, uh, and they are they're o- old women, and they're very grumpy. They they don't like anything about the world, and they're incredibly tersely Christian, uh, Christian in a very ascetic kind of a way. It's all about very, uh, it's very strict. It's all about uh, denial. It's all about being uh, sort of cold and inward, uh, making sure that the world is okay by just uh, uh, sealing yourself off. It's about, it's very hermetic. And uh, this woman named Babette uh, has fled Paris. She's French. And she doesn't really speak Danish that well. And she's looking for a job and somehow she's come into the employ way out in this remote village in Denmark and decides to serve the homes there. Uh, And she does, she kind of suffers silently, but she doesn't, she's not suffering. They're not torturing her. She's just sort of going through all of this hard work with these very terse, unhappy women. It's very bleak. It's very bleak up to this point. Babette, however the last time she went shopping and they, they can only go shopping every once in a while because they're so remote. The last time she went shopping, she got a lotto ticket and wouldn't you know it? She wins. And she decides with her winnings, not to flee, not to go anywhere, but to turn the minds of the people in this really remote, terse, dark place in Denmark to turn their minds to warmth and positivity using nothing but French cuisine. And she uses a good deal of her winnings to scrape up a lot of really exotic ingredients and make the best possible meal you've ever seen in this little teeny tiny remote village in the Jutland of Denmark. And... A lot of the film is devoted to the meal. Uh, just she's coming out and she's serving course after course. It looks amazing. There's a, a visiting soldier who is also eating the dinner, and he is not restrained enough to hold himself back from how wonderful this meal is. It's like, oh, I eat this quail egg. Oh, I eat this quail egg when I was a child. This is the most beautiful thing. Where the as the the two sisters are trying to stay like really stone faced. But you can see them slowly melting over the course of this meal. Uh This is a film that's been uh, approved by a lot of religious groups because it actually is about giving and warmth and making sure that others are sharing and connecting to other human beings. And it's using, you know, sensual pleasures to do so. so. It's using taste and food and something that is, you know, can be considered very base. You know, t- food and taste is you know, yeah. is a very instinctual thing. You can just sort of eat a food and it can not necessarily spark an emotional reaction. It just sort of is, is a very kind of gut reaction. But it's also very much about how one can masterfully engage in a craft to the point where it reaches an almost spiritual level. Uh, it is very, it's very 
downbeat. It's very calm. It's not a hugely incidental movie. There's not huge blocks of dialogue. Uh, so it might take a little bit of patience, but it by the time you get to the end, you've it, it's like I'm not sure if you've ever had like an after dinner wine or like a really good liquor where you drink it and you can kind of feel it pass down into your chest. And then there's this like slow motion explosion throughout your midsection. That's what watching Babette's Feast is like. It's like a little uh, little digestif at the end of a big meal. It just sort of fills you with this wonderful kind of gentle warmth. You realize you've been through something really, really significant. Uh, it, it's, it, it's really just wonderful. Uh, it won an Academy Award uh, back in 1987. Um, I don't know much about the director. The director is named Gabriel Axel, uh, and... As far as I know, this is his only movie, but he's he's actually acted and directed in quite a number uh, more. Um, let's see. I'm looking over his uh, his filmography now. They're all Danish films that I haven't seen. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, sadly, I'm not familiar with any of these movies. He made a movie called Amour, but that's that's not the same movie as. Um, he he was one of the filmmakers who worked on Lumiere. And yeah, he did. He did a segment in that, uh, which is a wonderful documentary uh, about. Um, about the history of the Lumiere brothers, who uh, were one of the first people who invented a movie camera. And over the course of the film, they invite filmmakers from all mm-hmm. over the world to make a movie today, where, when the movie was filmed in the mid-90s, uh, using the original movie camera. Yeah, yeah. Which is such <laughs> a great idea. And so many people do wonderful things. Uh, some people do, like, behind-the-scenes footage on, like, this big movie. So, like, big movie stars show. Like, oh, it's Liam Neeson. Mm. Holy crap. And then, like, David Lynch does this fucking thing. You don't know how he did it with that camera. Like, mm. it's really incredible. Um, so he guess he was a part of that. That's the only other thing that I'm a- yeah. aware of uh, that I have seen uh, right. from Well, him. what do you got? Okay, well, you had just done uh, Babette's Feast, uh, which is a very, uh, you know, you said yourself it's kind of a Christian uh, kind of story. Mm. It's a story about... Uh, uh, spirituality and all it's about generosity it's I a film about generosity film. what uh, <laughs> I happen to have a film on my list that is very explicitly a Christmas movie okay so I might as well pick that uh, it is a, and by the way my top five are like it, it, I guess that those and what's up doc I think are just like all practically perfect mm. like I love all of them picking a number one is actually like pulling teeth for me. I love all these movies so like in any other day this might be my number one because I think this movie is practically perfect and it is The Muppet Christmas Carol oh okay so you've chosen that's your second Muppet film because you had Follow That Bird as well technically yes technically yes I consider Sesame Street kind of its own mm. thing but yes technically that's my second Muppet movie uh, I, I could have picked more <laughs> I actually like a lot of Muppet movies uh, but I think The Muppet Christmas Carol is distinct in that it's not just a good Muppet mm. movie. You know, fun puppets doing whimsical things, and it's very funny and very sweet and endearing. <clears throat> um, it's also an adaptation of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, obviously. Mm. But the funniest thing is, and I don't think you can say this about even, like, Muppet Treasure Island, which I know you love. Th- that, that is my Muppet favorite Muppet Treasure one, yeah. Island is just an okay Treasure Island. It's a great Muppet movie, but it's just an okay Treasure Island. Oh, the Muppet Christmas Carol is one of the best adaptations of A Christmas Carol, because it's actually really genuine about the story. Well, uh... The story, which, which focusing on Michael Caine, who's a very, very good Ebenezer Scrooge, uh-huh. is actually very sincere and sweet and sad and... 
Uh, the Muppets never get in the way of that. They only amplify it. And I think that makes it a very odd duck in the Muppet universe. That it is a great classic lit movie as well as a great family piece of entertainment starring the Muppets. Yeah, I, I think what, uh, what sets the Muppet Christmas Carol apart from Muppet Treasure Island uh, is, is the, just the character of Scrooge. Scrooge is a straight man. He's always going to be a bit of a grump. The whole uh, journey of Ebenezer Scrooge is him learning how not to be a grump. If you look at Treasure Island, who's the main character? Jim Hawkins doesn't have a lot of character. He's a young boy who's sort of like swept up in this adventure that he doesn't have a lot of control over, and he learns to kind of be a hero. That's not the kind of foil that's really good for Muppets. If No, and even when you consider that like Tim Curry is like the big star guy, yeah for Muppet uh, Treasure Island. Yeah, Long John Silver. Um, he's in on the joke. He's having a fun time. And that's wonderful. It's very entertaining. But th- the fact that uh, uh, Michael Caine is in, like, a, quote, real movie, mm-hmm. and his life becomes, like, infected by Muppets, and he's constantly looking down on Muppets, like, it actually, like, works as an allegory for the story itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas Muppet Treasure Island is just kind of a bit of a lark. And you're right. Jim Hawkins... Jim Hawkins and... and uh, uh, Long John Silver have a great kind of father-son relationship that turns to antagonism, Which, but that's not the strongest part of that movie. Well, and also you don't need the Muppets to tell that story. I feel like also in uh, in uh, the, the Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, Charles Dickens is a character, and Charles Dickens is played by yeah. Gonzo. So there's actually always going to be this, like, uh, the you go Gonzo, this kind of like God figure, sort of, Gonzo and Rizzo are, are overseeing everything. They are additional ghosts to the story, and I think that's a good addition to the story because it adds a little bit of a humorous point of view while a lot of the serious things are happening. Agreed, yeah. So yeah, I think this is actually, like there are other truly great Christmas Carol movies. There's, there's actually a long-standing tradition of doing justice by mm-hmm. this story. Uh, but this is one that, like, it, it's the one our generation grew up with the best, but it, it the most. But it is also a really good movie, and it is even though there are dark elements, like there are in a Christmas Carol, it's a ghost mm-hmm. story. It's also very appropriate for everybody. Like every a child can appreciate this on an emotional level. Yeah, which I think is very, very uh, difficult to pull off in a kid movie. Uh, so yeah, I think mm-hmm. this is definitely one of the best G-rated movies ever. Yeah, Live action. Yeah. Um, Actually, in any, in any case, what about you? What you got next? Let's see, well, um, I too have a ghost story on my list. Ooh, fancy. so I, I got a nice bit of a segue, and it is uh, Robert Wise's *The Haunting* from 1963. Uh, so they re-rated that to a it's G? a G rating. That's a very intense. <laughs> it's one G. of the most intense G's. Uh, My it, God. It's more intense than that 1999 remake, and the 1999 remake is rated PG 13. Uh, I know, like, and it's and it's a joke. Like, it's it's they got Jan de Bond, and Jan de Bond's a fun filmmaker, but he's not a he doesn't know what scary is. Well, he, he doesn't know how to get under yeah. your skin. He knows how to get ya. Jan. But he doesn't know how to get under your skin. And Robert Wise was... Yeah, Jan de Bont uh, was better known for being a, a, a cinematographer than he was for being a director. Uh, his first film as a director was Speed, and then he also did Twister. And then he... A big one-two punch. Those were Yeah, 94 and 96, respectively. Yeah. And then he did Speed 2. And then he did The Haunting. Which wasn't very and, good. Yeah, which also yeah. And then his last movie, which I didn't even see, was the sequel to Tomb Raider. 
And uh, which is, I actually never saw that either. It's my understanding. A lot of people say it's better, but it's weird. He never did. Yeah, and that's it. Again. That's that's been. You'd it. think at least he could get gigs. You know, like he could like direct the next installment of something. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you know? he doesn't like, have to. think he would at least be he's had a, a, no, He doesn't have to, but he, he isn't, is he working at all? I mean, he hasn't, he isn't really, well, he seems to have just faded out from the, from the industry. Uh, he hasn't shot a film since 1992, and he hasn't directed yeah. a film since 2003, and uh, he was a, an executive producer on the film The Paperboy, and that was his last gig. Um, oh, weird. He, what a weird... What a weird uh, uh, credit. But, you know, when he makes uh, two yeah, movies like, he, and he gets he was two a golden he was raspberries. A very well-respected cinematographer. Uh-huh. He's a very well-respected cinematographer. Uh, about half of the movies he did were either very well-received or at least made a lot of money. Mm. Uh, it's just weird that he's just, just didn't work. I, I'm very curious to find out what happened, well, actually. I wonder how... Uh, how comparing, to bring this back around, comparing his version of The Haunting, which is based on the, uh, the uh, Shirley Jackson novel... Yeah. Uh, he likes to make his movies very sort of visually dynamic. He likes to have uh, a, like a high octane sense to all of his a lot of his movies. Uh, Twister is a special effects movie. Speed is very uh, it, it tense all the way through. You can't slow down. This bus will explode if you slow down. Uh, that makes it a great action picture, and that's what he tried to do with the haunting. He tried to turn this haunted house picture into an action movie. So there's a lot more bigger set pieces and like CGI monsters that kind of appear out of the walls. Whereas in Robert Wise's version of the haunting, it rather wisely uh, doesn't ever 100% confirm if the ghosts are real or not. And that's where a lot of its power comes from. And uh, the, the premise is uh, there's an ex, an experiment going on in a house that is supposedly haunted and uh, four people have been asked to stay there who are supposedly psychic. Like they they can sense paranormal activity. They're there to study the haunting itself and try to prove it as a phenomenon. And uh, the, the, I guess the three psychics that have been invited to this are played by uh, Julie Harris. She's the, the main one and she's, has a bit of a dark past, and she's, like, the most nervous of them. There's Claire Bloom, who is most assuredly a bisexual character. In, uh, oh, in yeah. at least in Jan de Bont's version, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones played that character, and she is expressly bisexual. Like, she says it in dialogue. And then there's uh, Russ yeah. Tamblin. He's the, the third guy. And the, the doctor who's overseeing it all is uh, played by Richard Johnson. Uh, you, wait, you know what, hon- Whitney? I'm going to have to correct hmm. you here, because I think we were both confusing the plot with the film The Legend of Hell House, that's the one where they're all psychics. In The Haunting, it's allegedly an insomnia study. Oh, okay. And the idea is that this build, this b- building is so terrifying it is not conducive to sleep. But, you know, I'm, I'm not completely incorrect, though, because the Claire Bloom character calls herself a psychic. And and uh, and the Julie right. Harris character sees ghosts. So they have, like, psychic powers. And I think uh, even the Russ Tamblin character has, like, Something right? Wait, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. You know what? I, you know what? I, I actually fucked up. It's, it's not as cut and dry. Uh-huh. In that, uh, the the John de Bont one was about specifically the insomnia yeah. thing. It is about par- paranormal investigations. I don't think the whole point was that uh, they were psychic, but I also think it's uh, it, it's something. 
Not super well, important. I think, I think one of them is a psychic, and the other ones are are uh, uh, one of them is a psychic. One of them has some experience with paranormal activity yeah. that they've experienced as a child, but they're not all necessarily psychic. Uh, but uh, the the point being, we don't we sense right away. The audience senses right away mm-hmm. that we don't know how much of this is part of the experiment. Like, is the fact that Claire Bloom is a psychic? part of this experiment and how much of this is being staged by the doctor and how much of this is being hallucinated by the people and how much of this is actually real. And over the course yeah. of the film, it's this brilliantly uh, photographed slow burn fear story of uh, the Julie Harris character kind of succumbing to a lot of misplaced guilt in her own life and how a lot of the experiences that she's having, and whether or not this exper- this experiment is real or not, it's kind of driving her a little mad. And she keeps hearing these yeah. weird sounds, and some of it's confirmed to be real, uh, to be unreal. Some of it might actually be real. Uh, the ambiguity is the strength. There, 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 regardless, there's something about this house, whether it's a supernatural mm. or just the suggestion of the architecture or the uh, un- unyielding emptiness and loneliness within it, that people are susceptible to falling down a rabbit hole of yeah, madness yeah. when they are inside. And it has happened before and it will happen again. And when we've, uh, the, the character Julie Harris plays, uh, she's she's never done anything in her life. The whole thing is this is like her one opportunity to go out and make something herself. And she's so eager to make friends and she's so eager to do something special and she's so eager for this to be real that there is a chance that she is simply projecting. Yeah, yeah. And she is willing these uh, uh, terrifying things to happen. Uh, or maybe that willingness is making her more susceptible to the house's supernatural uh, mm. power. Uh, and whether or not you, whatever your takeaway is, the movie is equally terrifying. Yeah, yeah. and that's the that's the beauty of it. It is so incredibly atmospheric. Uh, Robert Wise found a way to film sound, like the creaking of the floorboards, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the way that he photographs that with like the camera like moving along the floorboard. It's a technique that Sam Raimi would completely rip off in Evil Dead too. Um, it's just one of these. It's just one of the most atmospheric movies ever mm-hmm. filmed. And it is so creepy. And because the acting is so good, because the writing of the characters is so strong, um, you're 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 concerned for them. You're scared for them, and you feel how they are falling into mm. madness. It, it it doesn't feel like oh look at these idiots. Like, we've all seen horror movies where it looks just a bunch of people making bad decisions. Every decision Julie Harris makes, no matter how desperate or, or sad or uh, wrong-headed it is, every single decision he makes, you're like, I see mm-hmm. how she did that. I, I might do that, too, in that house. That house is scary as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I still can't believe this isn't she right. This movie is terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think... Um... Like, I know nothing happens in it, but, like, it's terrible stuff. But, like, it, it, it's not, like, violent, but, like, it's... Children would have nightmares I think uh, what, what's going on with something like The Haunting is, uh, and this is something 
to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode about how the way the ratings board actually operates, sometimes it is just a matter of like what kind of very specific objectionable things are in it, just like on a checklist. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yeah. it's about tone. Uh, one, a joke told in one movie would get a harsher rating than the exact same joke told in a different movie because in one it might be very lighthearted and in another it might be very dark. Uh, and it's, it's difficult to tell when the ratings board is going to give something a, a harsher rating because of tone or if they're just going to yeah. run down a, a checklist of uh, stuff that they object to. I and, remember when the when the Conjuring came out in 2013, mm-hmm. uh they were like uh, uh they they gave it an R rating and they appealed saying nothing actually happens. Like no one's murdered or anything yeah. here. It's ghost stuff. And the NBA apparently went back, "No, it's just really fucking yeah, scary." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I'm guessing tone. that with this one it was it's slow paced enough and that there's no actual like violence or uh, you know gore in in this horror movie that they felt eh, you know okay that that's a G rate nothing's going on it's just people sitting around talking there's they're not talking about anything objectionable they're just sort of talking about scary ghosts that's kind of it <laughs> that that's all they need yeah yeah no and and, it, and it's it's just one of the best damn films yeah like it's one of the best horror movies ever made it's one of the which makes it one of the best films ever made and again none of the films on my list i I excluded any film that was Mm re-rated uh but uh obviously this is one of the best films ever made so you you're you're well chosen Mm. even though i i find myself more limited um I, my next film, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't have another, I don't have a horror movie or anything like it, uh, but I do have a thriller, and I have a thriller that is, I think, a textbook example of how to do a thriller. Like if you want to learn how a thriller works, if you want to study the creation of suspense mm-hmm. in cinema, I and mean, really any kind of storytelling. Uh, you could study this movie and you would get so much out of it. Like, I, I could teach a whole class on it. Uh, and that is the 1974 Joe Camp film, Benji. Oh, you know what? I haven't seen Benji since I was a kid, so I can't really speak to this one. Ah. Okay, so the original Benji. Okay, Benji, if, if people don't know, it's been a while since they've done anything with Benji. They did a Netflix mm. movie, but hardly anyone saw it. It's good, though. The remake, the remake was actually good. Uh,. Benji was a little dog, and he was just a little, little mutt, you know, not a, not a pure breed or nothing, just a little scrappy mm. little dog. But he was a very well-trained dog, and he was the star of a variety of films of varying degrees of quality uh, that were, some of them were quite good, actually. And the first film was this independent film. It was made for $500,000. It grossed $45 million in the 70s. <laughs> which is a staggering amount of money in the 70s for a film that size. Um, and uh, the, the plot is this. Benji is a little dog. He lives in a small town. Uh, Benji doesn't have a home. He doesn't have, like, one house he lives in. There's a couple of kids who want to adopt him, but their dad doesn't want a dog. So they take care of him in the morning. They feed him. And then he roams around town, and we see him. We see his daily routine. We see he meets these people. He goes over here. Different people know the dog by different names because they don't know what the dog's name is. Uh, And we see him interact with every single person in town. And then, after setting up 
all of the characters, Benji's uh, connection to everybody. Benji doesn't talk or anything. It's just mm. good storytelling. Uh, the children are kidnapped and held for ransom. And the only person who knows it is Benji. Mm. So Benji has to run from the house where the children have been kidnapped and try to get anyone's help. It's not like Lassie where Lassie barks and everyone's like, what's that, Lassie? Did you just give me the entire plot of James Joyce's Ulysses? <laughs> like, they, you, they can't understand him. So we see Benji try every tool at his disposal, every person at his disposal, mm. every single thing he can do to do the simplest thing, a thing any human could do, just just point <laughs> or speak or and somehow convey urgency. And he can't. People ignore him because he's a dog. He can't get in somewhere because someone just closes a door on him. He is desperately trying to get help. And every single time he does his efforts are thwarted mm. and then he comes up with something clever but he comes up with something clever based on what we've already seen the first half of the movie is setting up all the information and all the tools you need for the second half of the movie to be staggeringly suspenseful as you're just waiting for this dog it's incredibly wonderful you know the acting is great on the dog he's so well trained and we're just trying to get him to save the day but it everything goes yeah. wrong. But Benji refuses to give up. Uh, it sounds like a silly movie. We see like little dog movies, cat movies, you know, pet movies. They they forgive the pun. They like litter the aisles of any video store or or the the family-friendly recommendations of any streaming yeah. service and the vast majority of them are they're just pat right they're just they're just the people make them because dogs make money blah 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 blah, blah. like it's how we've got a talking cat mm. uh but benji is actually an incredibly well-made suspenseful actually somewhat dark movie at, at times like there's real tension here like these these kidnappers these are not like wacky kidnappers like you would see in like some of the later airbud movies where the kids would be like oh we gotta stop those kidnappers but it'll be easy even even i could do that those guys are they're yutzes like no 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 there's there's real tension and threat mm -hmm. and we're just waiting for this dog to try to save the day and um yeah it's a textbook example of how to do tension and and right. uh, and that kind of storytelling it's so damn good that I absolutely... I, I didn't see the original until uh, I did an article uh, about all the Benji movies a few years ago when the remake came out. Mm. And I was so glad I did because it's genuinely great filmmaking. Yeah, I, I, um, I remember when Benji was big because there were several Benji sequels that came after it. Um, I know that... Like, Benji became this weird cultural presence uh, in, in sort of like the mid-1980s. Uh, I have seen the TV show. We covered Benji, Zacks, and the Alien Prince for uh, Cancel Too Soon. Why was that a weird uh, yeah, program? Benji, yeah. the dog, who is just a dog, like intelligent, but just a dog, falls in with an orphan boy who is on the run, uh, who has also befriended a talking robot, uh, and they're trying to hide out from evil alien overlords who would kidnap them. Yeah. It, that that show. that was their concept for Benji. We got to get some aliens in this thing. Yeah. 
the, the first sequel to Benji is called For the Love of mm. Benji. And it's one where he goes to Europe and somehow Benji, there, there's someone trying to smuggle a MacGuffin and it ends up on Benji's collar or something. And he's running throughout Europe trying to get back to his family while these people are, there's like a car chase with Benji, yeah. like chasing the dog down. And it's actually kind of amazingly well staged. Yeah. And there's a weird moment in it that suggests that maybe Benji is the reincarnation of a heroic cop who died in the line of duty. <laughs> that bit's fucking weird. Which proved to be true uh, in the film Oh was... Heavenly Dog. Right. So, so for Love of Benji, pretty good. Not as good as the original, but, but pretty good. Oh Heavenly Dog uh, stars Chevy Chase as a private eye who dies and is reincarnated as Benji and tries to A, continue solving the case, and B, continue romancing the female lead played by... Um, Oh, uh, what's her name? Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Oh, that, that's her name. Dr. Quinn. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's, that's great. Jane that's, Seymour. That's, there you go, Jane Seymour. Uh, I, I had forgotten. It's, it's, it's one of the most staggeringly bad films of the 1980s, and that's saying something. Uh, then there was Benji the Hunted, where he's like lost in the wild and a hunter's mm-hmm. after him. Pretty good. There's a weird low-budget one called Benji Off the Leash, which is not great. And then they did a Netflix remake uh, in 2018, which is surprisingly good and actually like totally worth seeing. So I recommend a lot of the Benji movies. Not all of them. Some of them are mm-hmm. shit. But like, like there's like three rock-solid Benji movies uh, out there. And the first one is still the best, and it is just impressively economical but highly effective suspense okay what do you got um well i have nothing with um like a cute animal i don't have i actually don't have a lot of like kid movies on my g-rated list that's so Uh, ironic well i mean i I guess it's weird that i again we think of g-rated as you know made for kids when really all it means is appropriate for a general audience uh, which could incorporate True, but a kids. lot of times in the last few decades, a lot of them were specifically yeah, made for yeah. kids. And you'd think a couple of them would be um, good. Here's one that's, I, I guess it's made, it's not made for kids, but it's made for the kids. Um, it's uh, okay. uh, A Hard Day's Night. Uh, this is a film about, ah. uh, maybe not a cute animal, but four cute British boys. <laughs> um, okay, look, I got no linking material. It's A Hard Day's Night. It's... Uh, I remember Roger Ebert described this movie as uh, it's the movie whose soundtrack you go into the movie humming. You don't leave humming this because you know this. It's, you know, okay, let's make a movie about the most popular band ever. And just the soundtrack is some of the best songs ever written. And it is this pseudo documentary style film about the real lives of the real Beatles as they are going through the first wave of their gigantic success uh, and they're being the film opens with them being chased down the street and it's just about their tour there's not much of a story at one point a Ringo feels a little bit uh, put out and abandons the band but then he just eventually kind of comes back people he, he goes for a walk in the park and then returns. yeah that's kind of it like that's that, that was all he needed it's like oh, I'm not really respected but I'm, I'm just gonna go back because I, I like playing and uh, it's all about gearing up for a big uh, TV appearance, and that's that's kind of it. There's a scene of them on the train as they're traveling. There's a scene of them staying in the hotel. They kind of wander around the hotel. They are funny human beings. The Beatles were hilarious, and they're kind of playing themselves, and they're kind of joking around, and some of the things they say are just hilarious. Um, uh 
there, there's a bit where um, this really fastidious uh, tailor is trying to measure them from her suits, and they have no respect for any of the, the adult world, man. They don't care about your, the squares. They're just going <laughs> to play around and be cool. And uh, you know, Are you a mod or are you a rocker? Uh, I guess I'm a mucker. Uh, and I remember the uh, one of my favorite bits in the movie is when the tailor is holding up a, a tape measure, and uh, I think it's, he's measuring George Harrison, and George Harrison walks away, and he's just sort of left there holding the tape. And then John Lennon comes up with a pair of scissors and says, I declare this bridge open, and he snips the tape and walks away. And <laughs> and the, the, the look at the tailor's face scamps. is, yeah, they're all, they're all just wonderful, wonderful little scamps. Um, yeah, it has, yeah. Uh, the Beatles are in it, but it also has some recognizable uh, British character actors, if you're familiar with, uh, you know, British movies at the time. Uh, who, who's the uh, the grandfather was played by um, Wilfred Wilfred Bramford uh, Wilfred Bramble was his name I almost got it right oh my god um, oh, Wilfred so Bramble who's yeah if if there the movie has a straight man he's it he's uh, uh, yeah. Paul McCartney's grandfather like I, I met your grandfather that's not him well we're all entitled to two uh and yeah and the whole gag is at, at the time the expression dirty old man was like all the rage oh he's a dirty old man and so paul mccartney is just like oh he's, he's very, very clean. clean but he desperately wants to go out and carouse and womanize mm. and gamble and there's a bit where they have to run off and find him and um a hard day's night it's 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 <laughs> It's so bizarre to me that A Hard Day's Night was so instantly iconic from, like, the opening shot of them, like, running from this, like, tidal wave, like, World War Z tidal wave <laughs> of zombies. But it's just screaming teenage girls after just chasing down the Beatles, trying to rip them to shreds, but lovingly, I guess. And uh, they're all just fleeing from them. Like, their celebrity has gotten so overwhelming it's become mm. comical. Um, this movie really toes that line between this kind of almost French new wave uh, kind of uh, a starkness to it. And that's uh, got a very down to earth aesthetic, mm. but it's also got a very uh, fanciful, fantastical sense of reality. There's this weird gag. You mentioned they're on a train. Um, they're on a train and there's a stuffy guy in the car with them. And he's just not having any of these Beatles mm. today. He's just not <laughs> in the mood of any of their, any of their mischief. And so they decide to leave in a huff. And then the guy looks out the window and the Beatles are now outside the train chasing after their train yelling, Hey mister, can we have a ball back? I don't know how they got there. <laughs> I don't know how they got back. It's like, it's just a bizarre gag. It's so weird to me how very few other films have successfully managed to, like, tap into this unique brand of jovial chaos. Like, you'll see films try, like Spice World. They're clearly inspired mm. by A Hard well, Day's Night. It's also another story about the real-life band and their wacky yeah. adventures. But they're just trying so hard. And I kind of like the movie. It's a ridiculous larf of a film. But A Hard Day's Night just feels like this weird, natural extension of the Beatles' personalities. Yeah. So that even though there are things in it that would never happen or absolutely absurdist, um, 
it feels like a documentary. It feels like this is probably what it feels like to be a Beatles. Yeah, right I, th- now. I think something like um, this is a little bit more in keeping with the spirit of the Beatles than an actual documentary would be. Because an actual documentary would include all of the nuts and bolts of it, like actually traveling and how they feel in sort of like their down. We moments. actually we have yeah, those documentaries. They're different. They have a different yeah, vibe. A yeah. Hard Day's Night, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is the real Beatles. Um, you talked about how Spice World was uh, was inspired by this. A lot of films and TV shows were inspired by this. Most notably, The Monkees. Uh, the Monkees are, are well, yeah. A Hard Day's Night, the TV series. We're going to make the Beatles into a TV series, but we're actually going to make our own Beatles, and only one of them is British. And uh, I feel like that sort of fun, slapstick, anarchic spirit lived on in the monkeys mm-hmm. way better than it did in some of the Beatles others other movies. Uh oh, I don't know, man. Help Hel- is Help funny. is funny. Help Help is v- a very odd duck. Uh I I prefer yeah. Help is a Marx Brothers movie that happens I, to happen. I suppose so. I I prefer Yellow Submarine. Yeah. I think that might be my actual favorite Beatles movie. But uh A Hard Day's Night is just wonderfully pure and it has such wonderful music of course it it is just about a a showcase to put on some of these wonderful songs and they have a hard day's night and they have can't buy me love and they have if i fell and they have uh, i'm just happy to dance with you and all all of the songs that you know um uh and you you leave just sort of getting a nice not just a good sort of having had a good time you know watching the beatles and feel like maybe you got to see what it would have been like to go to one of their concerts, but you get a good slice of like what the era was, what was changing about youth culture and what was changing about the way uh, popular music was being presented to people. Uh, I'm very interested in the rise of the teenager as a demographic uh, because Teenagers didn't like didn't used to exist, at least not the way we think of them today. Uh, (laughs) There were children and then they became adults and they were young adults. And uh, that's about as far as they went. It wasn't until sometime maybe in the 1950s that teenagers became sort of their own unit, sort of in the post-war American uh, milieu. Well, they started they started having things like disposable well, the exa- and cars and cars they, and they started having yeah. cars and like yeah they could they could get around and they actually became more of a contributing factor in society to the extent that and I don't mean I don't mean they weren't contributing before but I mean like as a, as a demographic mm. they started uh, having their own tastes and those tastes needed to be met by a capitalist society so things started shifting and youth cult people started trying to appeal to youth culture more and more and more with music and film and television and they became suddenly and we're still in this to some extent the focus mm-hmm. is the teen experience everyone is either wants to be a teenager if they're a little kid or an adult and nostalgic for when they were a teenager yeah, yeah. And you're trying to get back to that. You're trying to use beauty products to look like you looked as a teenager. You're watching movies that are reboots of stuff you saw as a teenager. You know, like, it's weird. And A Hard Day's Night is one of the films that, you know, kind of came out in that wave where teen culture was really starting to dominate as a cultural force. And and yet they made a really good movie. Like, there's so many, like, musical acts that were... Very, very good. Some might even say as good as the Beatles. I wouldn't. But some might mm-hmm. say. That had, you know, they, they made a stab at being in a movie, but 
Man, the, none of them, like, were able to, like, with the exception maybe of, like, a few later on, they, there really weren't a lot of other bands or acts that were actually able to get their own f almost life philosophy mm -hmm. out. Like, Elvis was a contemporary of the Beatles. Like, he, he came out earlier, but, you know, the Beatles and them were making movies at the yeah. same time. Uh, and Elvis's attempt at a film career, which was extensive, he made 31 narrative feature films over the course of less than 15 years. Uh, it was basically just, let's keep selling this guy as something people would like to consume. He is handsome, he will croon to you, and we'll put him in harmless stuff that you can watch while you make out at a drive-in. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles could have easily done something that half-assed. Like, Elvis tried a few times. I'm not going to pretend he didn't at least try to be an actor, but he settled into pointless pap that sold soundtracks pretty quick in his career. The Beatles, first time out of the gate, no, we're going to do the, something that's as weird and distinctive as we, the Beatles, are. And I think they found Richard Lester, who's a filmmaker who was willing to let them do all that. And they found a project that was anarchic in spirit. And it, it, if you want to look at this movie purely as an act of perfect marketing, <laughs> you absolutely could. Because there is no better way to sell the Beatles than to let the Beatles sell themselves. I don't think the film is quite that mercenary. It's way too whimsical to, no, to feel like a, a product. But it does exist to sell, to sell records, though. I mean, they, they didn't put the Beatles in the movie because they thought it wouldn't make money. Mm -hmm. The Beatles were at the height of their fame. Let's make a movie. There's definitely a part of that. Well, yeah, and mm -hmm. it sold them perfectly because they let them do something weird. No, they, they, What they let them be was, like, kind of be versions of themselves. And I think that that's really significant. Um, yeah, I, I, exactly. You look this up, you find some interesting bits of trivia because th this is one of those films that has been gone over with a fine-toothed comb. Every tiny element of production has has been very stringently recorded. So you'll find that one of the little kids watching uh, the Beatles on TV is actually a very young Phil Collins. Uh, one of the night nightclub dancers is played by Charlotte Rampling. It's like some some oh, famous wait. people are involved oh, wow. in all this. Uh, that's awesome. But, you know, you, it's one of those things where it's... The, the trivia is, like, ancillary. It Like, you don't really need to know that stuff to make the film more interesting because it's so pure and energetic the way it is. Yeah. Well, my next pick uh, is a film... And let me ask you, this is a fun little bit of trivia here. Uh, what do you think, if you can recall, mm -hmm. what was the last film to be nominated for best picture that was rated g the, oh um would it be it's been a while toy story 3 it is toy story 3 that is actually okay. well done All actually right. i kind of didn't think you get okay. there so fast but toy story 3 is not live action and in fact i was surprised to learn that toy story 3 was rated g because that movie gets pretty mm. dark um but what was the last live action movie to be nominated for Best Picture that was rated Ooh. G. Yeah, that I couldn't say. Gotta go back to the 90s. It's Babe. Oh, yeah, Babe. I love Babe. 
Babe rules. And Babe is, is almost on the edge of being live action because they had to use a lot of CG to, like, mm. make the animals, like, yeah, talk I, and everything think, like that. Um, but they still use a lot of practical stuff. A lot of puppets, a lot of really well-trained animals. I think I uh, actually uh, disqualified Babe from my own list for that very reason. I also wanted to stay away mm-hmm. from Muppet films because I know they're not animated, but, you know, I, I wanted... Kind of feels like it's not in the spirit. Just live action actors just seemed more appropriate in my mind. There's no, it, and that's completely arbitrary. Yeah. There's no real logic to that. Well, I, I no, I think there's there's an element of logic to that, but I think it's interesting that I decided that wasn't important. But I decided that films that were re released and re rated by the MPAA mm-hmm. was important, and you felt the opposite. So uh, I'm just gonna let me have this. But I even even I was like, is this pushing it? And I honestly don't think it is. I think this is... I think it's an achievement. And I think, you know, putting Benji first, I think, kind of helps prime my selection. Because Benji is, is just yeah. a dog. Like, there's... A trained animal, Maybe yeah. there's a couple of shots in the new one where he's CG, but I don't think so. Like, he's just a trained dog. It is clearly live action, even though they are clearly working in an unusual way to make the movie. And Babe, again, there's some puppets in here. Uh, and I know there's a lot of CGI to like make you know the animals like talk, but it won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. It beat Apollo 13. <laughs> um, but uh, mostly, this is a practical movie, as practical as any mm. Muppet movie, at least. It was all done in front of the camera for a lot of it, uh, and it is just one of the sweetest movies. <laughs> anyone has ever made and if you haven't seen it in a long time watch it it's so good and if you've never seen it uh it is the story of a little pig he's a little cute pig and everyone likes him and he's got a cute voice and everyone likes him and he's a wonderful Hmm. pig but big butt here uh he is on a farm and he is being raised by sheepdogs who who love him very very much but his purpose on a farm is to eventually be sold and or Mm. killed probably both but definitely one day he will be bacon and uh in order to save him from that he has to find something else that makes him useful on the farm and what he decides to do is to follow in his sheepdog parents footsteps and become a, 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 a herding animal <laughs> and he actually like learns to herd mm-hmm. sheep and it ends in a big competition where there's like oh will these sheep herding dogs herd sheep really well okay and then will babe a little pig not even a full size pig a little, a little pig yeah. he's just a little pig will this little pig find a way there's a moment in this movie because the whole thing is babe is good at herding sheep because he's polite to the sheep, and it's well while, while the other while the dogs are like barking like "Hey, get over here!" Arr! Babe is just like, "Would you mind moving over here, please?" Well, and the sheep are like, "Well, what a nice." I was going pig. to point out that uh, Babe is is a spiritual precursor to the Paddington movies, in that both films yeah. uh, argue that it is a virtue to be quiet, polite, and well behaved. Uh, Babe mm-hmm. and Paddington aren't the kinds of heroes that are going to move kids to mayhem. Uh, we already brought it up earlier. We already <laughs> no, brought it up no, earlier. No. There's a film coming out this week called about the minions and the minions move kids to mayhem. Babe doesn't do that. Uh, yep. Babe is about being kind. 
and also there's this weird caste system on the farm. So there's this bizarre and dark uh, political underpinning to something like Babe, where um, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 very gentle farmer who's played by James Cromwell. Who is great in the film, by the way. This might be one of his best. Maybe one of his he's best like, roles, actually. Oscar yeah. nom. It's his only Oscar nomination. He's for Babe. He's great. He's, for babe. he's great in Babe. It's hilarious. Uh, he is wonderful. But uh, he's the only one who kind of sees the potential in this animal, and everybody else says, "Well, that's that's a pig. Pigs are food. We just let it grow, and then we kill it and we eat it." Mm-hmm. And Babe, who. Uh, is just a, a completely sweet, innocent character uh, played by uh, Christine Cavanaugh as the voice actress. Uh, d- doesn't quite understand that for a lot of the movie. And it takes a cat, because cats are always supervillains, to tell, to tell Babe <laughs> that, uh, no, you, you, are, you are food. You're a food animal. They call it pork or bacon. They only call you a pig when you're alive. Uh it's, hey, you know what? Cat's not wrong. <laughs> he's a, he's a dick about it, mm. but his cat's not wrong. And if the cat hadn't spurred Babe to do something mm. about it, Babe might have ended up very differently. So maybe the cat's the hero all along, Wendy. <laughs> right, the cat is the hero, and Babe and Babe what is, is that the attitude? villain. Oh my god! Well, William and I uh, to, to to elucidate the bitterness that we're we're sort of throwing at each other right now. We had a conversation about how cats are, are typically depicted as villains in movies, uh, where yeah. cats are are characters. Uh, there are far there are far more movies where dogs are heroic and cats are villains. Yeah, like, than there are like you, you can probably think of a couple examples off of the top of your head where cats are benevolent or actually like kind of kind characters, but they're they're rare. They are the exceptions. You, you, once you start listing them, you realize you run out of material a lot faster yeah. than when you start listing movies about heroic. But dogs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- th- this is an, yet another villainous cat uh, who tries to break babe's illusions uh and uh oh gosh this this is a movie i i didn't give much mind to because it came out in the mid 90s i was already in high school and i didn't want to see kid like kitty movies about talking animals i wasn't interested no you're, yeah, you're was, a cool was too, guy you're too, an adult, you're a, you're an adolescent you're yeah, a teenager yeah, was, the world revolves around you now you don't want to watch it yeah, i was way way animals. way too cool to watch the uh the talking animal movie uh, and then it started getting attention from the Academy. I'm like, wait a minute. Hang on. You're telling me that this Gordy ripoff <laughs> is up for best picture. <laughs> so I, Gordy is another pig movie from about the same time. Uh, yeah. There, there were a couple of knockoff Babe mm. imitators around the same time where people were trying to capitalize on the success of Babe with mm. a couple other pig movies. But yeah, I, I watched it. I realized just kind of how gentle it is and how positive it is um we could have actually uh segued from babette's feast into this one because it is about kindness and decency and it's about uh yeah it probably would have worked looking out into the world and trying to find a place for everyone in it and how this Mm. uh animal who is destined to for the chop it's going to be killed and eaten at some point doesn't even doesn't even understand its fate and goes for something else instead. It already has dreams. Uh, And, and that's uh, like, it's weirdly inspiring. 
No, it's it's an absolutely it's it's a it's a perfectly realized mm-hmm. fairy tale. Like as a story, it's exquisite and it's realized with such a handsome, you know, fable-like quality. And the visual effects that they employ are mostly very mm-hmm. seamless. And um, I, I just want to give a quick shout out before we move on because as much as I love Babe, I might love Babe Pig in the City more. Although that's rated yeah. PG. I, th- I think they're both good. I, I'm Pig not going to excrete either is, of them. I think they're both great movies. No, no, no. It, it, it's, a, it's a Paddington, Paddington 2 situation where, like, they're both uh. amazing. Please see both of them. But Paddington, but uh, Babe 2 is not rated G. Uh, it is a much more Dickensian kind of film where Babe goes to the city, uh, the farm is in danger, and he ends up in, a like, an apartment complex filled with wayward animals mm-hmm. and... Uh, it's it's darker, you know. the 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 plight of the animals is a bit more bleak, I think. But it it all turns out okay, and the visual effects are absolutely incredible. And it's, I believe, it was the last film Gene Siskel ever called the best movie of the year before he died. Yeah. So um, uh, do check it out if you haven't seen it. It's really amazing. But again, yeah, um, PG. Ba- so ba- well, expect? just a, a minute on uh, ba- Babe Pig in the City. Yeah. Uh, it was was filmed by. Uh, George Miller, who would also do the Mad Max movies. And I will say this, he films uh, Babe Pig in the City with more energy and skill than he does something like Mad Max. Uh, Just the the, the way the camera swirls and his use of light and color and the angles on the animals. Because he's filming animals, he can be a little bit more adventurous uh, as to how he wants to film them. He's not beholden to the human shape. So I think there's a lot more interesting visual things going on in something like Babe Pig in the City than even something as as exciting as Mad Max Fury Road, which, you know, is... Has, I don't like, disagree. You know, gigantic right. machines and fire and you know, chases and excitement and violence. But Babe Pig in the City actually has a, a lot more um, uh, just dynamism in it. Mm-hmm. I, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, yeah. But moving on. Moving um, gosh, I, I don't really have any real segue. I, I should have gone from uh, Babe or Benji into Planet of the Apes. That way we could go you know keep the animal theme going. So. Um, yeah, we we don't yeah, plan I'll, these I'll just things, do a I hop, mean, skip, and a jump over to uh, 1931. Uh, again, this was one that was uh, submitted after the fact, and uh, it's probably the best Charlie Chaplin movie. Uh, it's it's City Lights. Okay. Uh, ah, I, yes. I am. I, I'll say this: I'm a Buster Keaton guy. Buster Keaton Same. is better than Charlie Chaplin. I said that out loud. And I stand by it. I think he's great. Whoa. Uh, Chaplin and Keaton are constantly vying for like sort of the top spot as the, like the the world's best uh, comedian of the silent film era. And uh, poor Harold Lloyd is always yeah. in third place. Uh, yeah, but better to be third than every other silent comedian who's pretty much forgotten in that mm-hmm. conversation. Well, and and I don't know why people don't bring up Laurel and Hardy because they are also equally amazingly hilarious. Because. But because they actually had a successful, like a, a successful career in sound mm. film, and I think a lot of people just sort of lump them into the sound era because they made that trend. Like Charlie Chaplin made the transition, but he wasn't very prolific yeah. after the sound era. Well, whereas Laurel and Hardy were equally, if not more so, for a while. So I, I think the uh, the issue with Charlie Chaplin is um, Buster Keaton. His his whole shtick was he was stone face. 
Uh, that was his nickname. Uh, and so yeah. he had to, you know, just, he, he didn't have to adapt much to get into sound because his characters didn't speak a lot anyway. Uh, Chaplin was such a control freak about his movies. They had to be a certain way that even when technology was advancing and sound was introduced into movies, he still wanted to keep on making silent films because he was so fond of the aesthetic. So uh, City Lights is about his famous tramp character. Uh, and this is a movie that uh, Charlie Chaplin started, wrote, produced, catered. He did everything on his, this movie. But it came out in 1931, which was like four years after sound was already introduced. Sound took the world by storm. Uh, everybody wanted to make sound pictures, watch the film Singing in the Rain, another good G-rated movie, uh, mm. about this sort of like fictionalized history of the way sound infiltrated Hollywood. Uh, Chaplin dug his heels in and said, no, I'm going to keep on doing silent movies. And in 1931, he decided to make City Lights, which happens to be one of the great silent movies. Uh, and it's, it's a, I guess you could call it a, a mistaken identity plot. It's about, a, 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 you know, the, the tramp character. He lives, lives on the streets. He's, you know, in, completely impoverished. And he uh, falls madly in love with a, a flower sales girl. Uh, and uh, it, however, she is blind. She can't see him. And so she mistakes him for a millionaire. She thinks that she's fallen in love with the, this millionaire character who's fallen in love with uh, with him. So it's a, the movie's about him trying to pass as a millionaire and get enough money so he can uh, get the flower seller in operation and she'll be able to see again. Uh, it's all contrived plot stuff. It's all uh, you know, super melodrama. But it's it's contrived in that incredibly effective yeah, well, way where everything just feels like condensed and well, I was sharp. gonna say there was that was sort of like uh, I think filmmaking in the silent era uh, had a tendency toward that kind of broader melodrama because they were dealing with these much more theatrical visual styles. You know, the cameras were bigger, they were locked down, it was more based on faces and scenarios that you could read visually. So as such, the stories had to be a little bit more broad. You watch a lot of silent movies and uh, I mean, there are plenty of filmmakers who worked very subtly. I think like Murnau, for instance, was a very subtle filmmaker, but Chaplin swung for the walls and a lot of silent filmmakers swung for the walls. So this is a movie that plays big. Most silent films played big, uh, but it plays big and it plays fair. And I think by the time we get to the end and we have a lot of these really wonderful giant moments and big emotional catharsis, all of them hit perfectly. And of course, uh, mm -hmm. city lights is well known for its final shot where, um, uh, the movie came out in 1931. I can talk about the ending of city lights, uh, where, uh, <laughs> it, it turned through some of through plot machinations, uh, he was able to get enough money for the operation, uh, but he was still destitute by the end. Like he, he wasn't able to get any money for himself. Uh, and so the last shot yeah. is uh, the flower seller who can now see seeing the tramp and not recognizing him because he's a tramp. And then something happens to remind little tiny moment happens where she is reminded of who he is. She recognizes him and it's, uh, the final shot is his reaction shot to her realization. And he kind of realizes, yeah, this is me. And you kind of see th the spark in his eye. And it's actually 
often cited as one of like the best final shots in all of cinema. And I can't really argue that. Um, It's up there. It really, and it's, it's incredible because it knows the exact moment Mm -hmm. to end. We don't need to see them hug. We don't need to see a wedding or anything. We just, the chaplain brought us to the brink of despair. We're like, Oh no, this is going to have a sad Mm -hmm. ending. It's sweet, and it's going to work. It'll work, this sad ending. Like, it's it's kind of fitting, his tramp persona. Like, what yeah. a tragedy. But, oh, what a bummer. And then there's one for a second, like, oh, wait! Credits. Like, uh-huh. or the end, rather, because it's before they had credits at the end. And it's like, oh, my God. It's just absolutely exceptional. This is one of the... Again, I, I think if you want to study mm. storytelling, one of the best things you can do is find wonderfully functional, simple mm. stories. And I'd mentioned it with Benji, and I think City Lights is, is again, it's a somewhat contrived well, setup. It's... It is a relatively straightforward conflict that needs to be resolved, this this task, this impossible task that needs to be performed, that leads to what could end up being a, a personal tragedy, even though it is, in many respects, mm. a great victory. And then we it, it, we don't pull the rug at you from the end, we just put, a, put the rug back. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I think that's I think we both use the word uh, contrived to describe the plot. I don't think it's really contrived. That might not be quite the right, right word. I think it's just sentimental. I think it that's what we're... And there's a, a, a lot of people have an aversion to a kind of... A very specific kind of cinematic, manipulative sentimentality because they find it to be disingenuous, perhaps. Or they are just really mm-hmm. aware of being manipulated. But... When it comes to certain movies, yeah. you don't mind being manipulated. And I think when you're dealing with something as unapologetically sentimental as City Lights from an unapologetically sent- sentimental filmmaker like Chaplin, uh, you're going to mm. kind of f- fall in line with it. I I haven't always, uh, I haven't always fallen in line with Chaplin's stuff. I think sometimes mm-hmm. that sentimentality can be a little bit too much. I think his earnestness yeah. can go a little bit over the top. Um I, I think I rewatched his film, The Great Dictator, at just the wrong point in my life because uh, it, it's sort of about this satire of fascism and how it's good to start needling the fascists. But we're living in the United States at a time when fascism is kind of on the rise and we see kind of how powerless a lot of that satire is. So I was very bitter when I watched that movie. It's it's fine. I hear it's you. fine. I, I, I need to go back and watch it again, though. Um, yeah. But you said you were. What were you going to say? There's there's an element of that I disagree with because I actually think when I, contrived is one of those words that has a negative connotation and it can be used completely yeah. neutrally. Uh, it, it's like pretentious. Pretentious suggests that w- the author of whatever work, whether it's music, book, mm-hmm. movie, whatever, uh, expects you to know something going in. Yeah, Pre- pretense. Uh, and there, there's mm-hmm. a pretense. There, there's an element of. I expect you to have done the reading in order to appreciate this text in some regard. Maybe you've seen a movie, maybe you've read the book before, maybe you have a really good understanding of history or something like that. Uh, And if you didn't do the reading, then it can be somewhat impenetrable, and it is very, very clear that they expected something of you that was maybe not reasonable Mm -hmm. to expect. And that's when it becomes negative. Uh, To be contrived... I don't think it's the same as being sappy or sentimental. They often go hand Mm. in hand. When I use contrived, 
I use contrived as in, in order to get this plot going, we had to take a lot of leaps. And I think that's fair to say of a lot of broad mm. comedies. I think that's fair. I mean, that's that's like the the plot of something like UHF. Okay, well, how do we get Weird Al Yankovic to run a, a TV station? That's all we really yeah. want to get to. I don't know, his uncle wins it in a poker match, and then his wife convinces him to give it to mm. Weird Al. Okay, it's kind of contrived. Like, you, you kind of have to go a couple of weird extra steps yeah. to get there. And I think that's fair to say. And I, and, But I don't think that's a negative here. I think in this case, getting to this unusual storyline, this unusual romance, this unusual tale of sacrifice, and, and uh, someone who will go above and beyond for someone that they care about, even if th it might end up hurting their relationship. Um getting to that point is worth the journey you're not mad at city mm. lights for being contrived in order to get us on this story because this contrivances stop and then it simply uses them as the foundation mm. for a story that is actually very earnest and genuine emotionally and the contrivance of the plot is just an excuse to get there so I think contrivance can just be a description of a plot that is based on a lot of coincidence or, you know, based on something that would never happen in real life. And we just wanted to get this movie going. Uh, and it can just be a neutral descriptor. So when I say this is contrived, I mean, that's not a story that's going to happen no. very often. <laughs> that, that's, that's fair. That's all I mean. Like, it kind of has to happen this way in this movie, but it's generally speaking not what's okay. going to happen. This is pretty contrived. So, but it all right. works. Uh, that, 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 that's all very well stated. Well. Yeah. Um, so I got two picks left, and I honestly, again, as I said before, I think my top five are all kind of a... Uh, uh, are all kind of. I just realized I've been writing down uh -huh. our lists, and I absentmindedly instead of writing Babe, I wrote Pig. Just pig. Well, that's a that's <laughs> a different movie, and that one pig. was not rated G. It's a, no, it was absolutely not. I just that just that just made me laugh. Um, so I got two, and and seriously, these are these are my top two, I think, and uh, it it's a total coin toss, and I think I'm thinking we're gonna go with the one that's a little more sentimental. Uh, just because it's a good transition from City Lights. Uh, this is one of the best films from one of the best mm -hmm. filmmakers. But it is also very unusual in his filmography. I'm speaking of David Lynch's oh, Street that, Story. It, I, I wrote that one down, but it didn't make my final cut. Yeah, well, again, I'm working with a somewhat more limited uh, uh, selection of mm -hmm. films than you are. But um, David Lynch is a filmmaker who is best known for making... Uh, dreamlike sometimes shocking films about uh, crime and murder and anxiety and yet in 1999 he directed a film for mm. disney that was g-rated and the plot is this a very old man played by richard farnsworth a wonderful actor who never really got lead roles uh he's a world war ii veteran present day at the time and he finds out that his long estranged brother is sick and he needs to go visit him in order to make amends, make things right. Problem is, uh, he has his license taken away. He is no longer a, a safe to drive, and he can't 
walk and he can't afford to to do anything else so what he does is he packs up his riding mower which can go like like, like what, yeah, five seven miles, miles an, hour an hour or something like that yeah yeah and he goes on a 240 mile journey from iowa to wisconsin to go see his brother and along though that's a very slow journey <laughs> And they, again, this is he's a very old man. He doesn't have all the time in the world and neither does his brother and he doesn't know if he's going to get there in time. And this is one of the ultimate uh, it's the journey, not the destination uh-huh. movies. Uh, at the ending, it's another very perfect ending when he finally gets to his destination. I won't tell you what happens because it's not as well known as City Lights, but um, when he gets there, there's a there's just the briefest of scenes and it's perfect. And um it's about this guy's journey as he meets random mm. people on his trial on his travels, some of whom he helps, some of whom wow. help him. Uh, there's a really wonderful bit where he's just in like a bar or a diner. I, I forget. I think it's a diner. And he just meets someone and starts telling stories about World War II that you can tell he's been trying not to think about yeah. for many, many years. Uh, this is a story about being old and kind and willing to do difficult things for the right mm. reasons. Uh, and it is lovely to look at. It is beautifully well acted. Richard Farnsworth was nominated for Best Actor. And honestly, the more I think about it, the more I think he should have won that year uh, based on his competition. Um, and um, it's, in many respects, it's very unusual in David Lynch's filmography. It doesn't approach most of his usual subject matter, but it does have his unabashed love for odd characters, people who ordinarily would not be the lead in a mm. story, and his love of this kind of uh, um, fairy tale aspect mm. of america but unlike most of his movies where he's looking to undermine that fairy tale persona here in straight story he's just saying no sometimes people are nice <laughs> and there's something really lovely about that it's a it's a truly yeah, great movie. um i mean david lynch uh it, i guess if there's like a thematic through line through a lot of his movies it's the emotions that are hidden within uh underneath like placid exteriors and Mm. typically he would make movies about how there was a lot of dissatisfaction hiding behind closed doors uh that's definitely what blue velvet is about uh eraserhead kind of delves into a city where it's everywhere uh lost highway is about uh this marriage that's completely falling apart there's all this darkness lurking in their house uh it's all about darkness it's all about death it's all about resentment uh, the straight story is uh, an exception in that the thing that's lurking is uh, a, a very deep and distant sadness, that there's a kind of regret to a lot of what's going on. But the sadness is not so pervasive as to taint anything. It's actually seen as a very healthy, full part of these characters. And it's the thing that's really driving them to... Uh, to move, to move forward, to grow as human beings. Uh, it's the thing that has sort of sparked this quest. Uh, my brother is in trouble. We didn't speak a lot, but I'm going to have to do this in order to, you know, have, have the, the moment that they have. Uh, 
And I think there's something really kind of uh, honest and exhilarating about that in a way that we don't usually get from David Lynch. David Lynch usually makes movies about fear. He makes movies about uh, the way the world is sort of geared up to harm you or to give you nightmares. Uh, it, uh, it's His films are very dreamlike. They feel like you're having a nightmare. Uh, the straight story is weirdly optimistic and i think david lynch himself is kind of an optimistic dude uh, you you hear hear him talking he's he can be depressed and he can be dark and you we've seen his movies we've seen how dark he can get but he's also kind of just a genial person especially after he uh went into the the whole meditation thing uh straight story is just and as such because even though it stands apart it's just as much a david lynch film as any of his uh better known nightmarish movies uh and yeah if, if you're a, a fan of the filmmaker i mean this this is just as vital as anything else yeah but it's, it is it does stand mm. out a bit doesn't it uh what is your what is your well, second i'm, to last I'm on pick? my last or no i guess i'm not on my last pick i do have i have two you're not, left, you have two left. i missed one here okay well i'll, I'll save my number one but uh, my second to last, it's not my number two pick, it's just my second to last thing that we're going to talk about. That's what uh, I said. Is, uh, I, rep- um, I repeated directors, and I hope you'll forget- forgive me. I, uh, I did two Muppet movies, I can't judge. This is another Robert Wise film. Uh, this is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um from 1951. Uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still is one of my favorite science fiction movies. It's one of the best science fiction movies iconography from the day the earth stood still has bled into the popular consciousness in ways that uh well we could like we were talking about the wizard of oz earlier people know what a flying saucer looks like because of the day the earth stood still gort is one of the great movie robots uh and uh mm-hmm. it also has that kind of uh star trek ish uh moral lesson to be taught near the end uh, because this movie is actually, it's about, uh, it, it, it came out in 1951, it's about sort of the state of the world in post-war America. And it was actually teetering on a precipice after the war was over. People had, uh, almost right away, according to this movie, become kind of complacent. Uh, complacent to the point of letting the military do a little bit too much thinking. The military had just been bolstered by the war and they won against the bad guys. And now, well, what's going to happen? Well, why don't we just continue to develop those really horrible bombs that we dropped on Japan? And wouldn't you know it, we can destroy the entire world pretty easily. Uh, and into this mix comes a, an alien visitor. His name is Klaatu. He's played by Michael Rennie. And... He lands his spaceship in Washington, D.C., walks out wearing a spaceman mask, uh, and he's immediately shot. <laughs> he steps out, yeah. out of his flying saucer, and the military is all standing around, and the military shoot him. And when they shoot him, who should come out of the uh, flying saucer behind him but Gort the robot? Gort melts all of the weapons out of the soldiers' hands, and he explains, I need to talk to all of Earth's leaders, not the U.S., everybody. It's an American film. That's why he landed in the U.S. It, you know, it would have made more sense if he yeah. landed in some kind it's of arbitrary, you know, it's neutral. Arbitrary. He probably, he probably. Hey, listen, it, it's it's an American film, and post World War II, uh, America was considered kind of the dominant, you know, yeah. country 
uh, and as a result, he might have defaulted to that. But even so, that's clearly nationalism yeah, yeah. talking. So, uh, but Klaatu ends up being taken to the hospital, but he escapes and he sort of flees out into the populace and hides out. And he ends up staying with uh, this this uh, young boy who lost his father in the war. There's even a scene where they go to Arlington National Cemetery to visit his dad's grave. So this is where the world is at this point. Kids losing their parents. Uh, and he tries to go out into the world to find, like, scientists. Somebody who might actually is open-minded enough to listen to him because he knows that politicians won't. Uh, and in order to get the world's attention, he has to orchestrate, kind of near the end of the film, the day the Earth stood still. He turns off all of the power on Earth. Uh, although they do explain that he was very selective. Like he's not turning off operation theaters. He's not turning off planes in flight. You know, he's keeping people safe, but everything else is off. The machines are gone. And I think that's a good address as to what another thing that was going on in, in post-war America was this new vaunting of technology. Uh, technology was throughout the 1940s depicted as something very, very positive. It's something that's going to help us. And then what, what do we do with it? we make a bomb that can wipe out a city. That's That yeah. was what we did with our in innovation. That was what we did with our scientific know-how. And uh, as such, you know, the day that you stood still, oh, you're reliant on technology, are you? Look what I can do. My technology is superior. And if we were to face a superior technology, we'd be completely helpless. And ultimately, the, the lesson is... Uh, kind of a threat. It's actually not as Roddenberry yeah. uh, as all that. He's not saying you get to live in peace because it's a good idea. He says you get to live in peace because if you don't, you're going to destroy yourselves. And you know what? Rather than have you become a threat to the rest of us, the rest of the galaxy, as you move into space, this is during you know the start of the space mm -hmm. race, uh, there's these like indestructible death robots all over the galaxy and they'll just obliterate you if you yeah it, it's yeah it's it's a weird thing people tend to think mm. about you're right people tend to think about the day the earth stood still as this sort of uh a utopian fantasy where aliens come down and tell us how to live and we don't appreciate it but eventually we'll get it like they're actually kind of flipping the mm. script on what america did at the end of world war ii where at the end of world war ii America had successfully developed nuclear weapons and mm -hmm. they used them. And the Cold War basically started with America saying, don't make yeah. us do this again. The day the Earth stood still is aliens coming down and says, hey, all of you people are warring with each other. Don't make us use a killer mm -hmm. robot on you. And it's kind of very jarring and uh, uh, very daring and very, very bold to tell a story that has elements of nationalism. And again, he comes to the United States. There's this idea that, Oh, he comes to the United States. We're, we're so important while using the tactics by which the United States imposed mm. quote peace uh, against us. And to make a show like just how scary that is and how uh, just how dominant, that yeah. that is and so there's a reason to be frightened of what's going on in the day of the earth stood still we are not being guided into a beautiful new future by by vulcans who want the best for us and are willing to put up with their shit while we figure ourselves out this is imposed yeah morality yeah. 
And it's it's and it's arguing again. This is after World War Two. People died. People were traumatized. People were systematically murdered. So many horrible things happened that the idea that like peace might actually be something we just need to actually make tell everyone to shut the mm-hmm. fuck up and do is kind of a fantasy, isn't it? And it's an interestingly complicated science fiction film yeah, on a moral and- level. It's not as cut and dry as I think a lot of people do. No, and, and while one might be able to appreciate it on that level, I think it really is, uh, you use the phrase, flip the script. This is uh, trying to show to all of, sort of, essentially the victors of World War II what it feels like to be uh, occupied. But in a, yeah. in a way that feel that, Leo, you know, it's like we are technologically advanced. We're going to say things in a nice way. But make no mistake, you you're in deep doo doo here. You're in deep trouble. Yeah, I would have been great if you used the word doo doo. Like this awesome speech at the end, where I will reveal the secrets of the universe to you, and killer robots will come in and destroy your planet unless you uh, you 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 straighten up and yeah. fly right. You guys are in deepest of doo-doo. So I, I think uh, everyone's like, "What?" <laughs> I think Robert Wise, but yeah, I think Robert Wise was trying to uh, yeah. maybe show the United States what it what it would feel like to be occupied and by the United States. Yeah. So it's 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 you know, really it's, really richly political. That, uh, There's a lot going on in this movie. I think it is a w- wonderful yeah. snapshot as to where the United States was in 1951. And it's just so cool. I love Gort and I love the, the, <laughs> the alien language and I love all the technology stuff in it. It's just really great. It is. It's a really cool film. But I, what I think is really interesting and, and this film in my number one pick, the film, like if I had, you know, if mm-hmm. I had to pick the best G rated live action movie, I, uh, they have this in common, but a lot of the films on our lists have this in common, I think. And this is something that I think uh, really subverts the idea that children's movies are are fluff. Uh, there are so many profound and challenging ideas that can be conveyed in a way that doesn't require a mm. potty mouth or violence or, or graphic sex or really anything that would be considered by even modest uh, uh, standards um, inappropriate for Mm. all audiences. Uh, There's so many movies that can actually, like, capture something universal and profound without needing to go higher than a G rating. That is not a a value judgment on the rating system. You tell your story and you know, let it be whatever it is, and we'll tell you if it if it has violence, okay, fine, it's not a G, whatever. But, like, there's no reason why a G-rated movie can't be not only mm-hmm. great, but life-changing. Yeah, I was always uh, a little bit weirded out by uh, the MPAA's description of giving something a harsh rating for thematic content. Like, well, you know, if, if it's yeah. thematically, like, rich or interesting or adult in some kind of way but it's presented in a way that a kid could understand, then why shouldn't a kid be able to see that? Or why should, I guess maybe the parents should be prepared to maybe have a conversation with their kid afterwards. See, I always feel like what they're actually getting at there isn't so much thematic, unless the theme is like serial killers, which, okay, maybe not. But even then, I think what they're 
honestly talking about more often than anything else is plot content. Mm. You know, where it's just like, hey, listen, not, maybe nothing like absolutely horrible happens here, but it's like a movie set in World War II. There are Nazis. Mm. Uh, and once we delve into that in any kind of non-perfunctory way, you start needing to have a conversation with your kids about Nazis. Then it starts getting into some tricky territory, and maybe you're not ready to have that talk with your four-year-old mm. yet. So, I think, I think it's a little bit more to do with that. It's like, is this child ready for the larger conversation here? Not necessarily the theme, but what's going on around yeah. that theme. Uh, so, uh, but on that note, on that note of uh, sort of movies that are very ambitious thematically, uh, my number one mm. pick is a film by one of the, I think, almost indisputably, one of the greatest directors who ever lived. Uh, and it is a film that won the Academy Award for Best International mm, Feature. Okay. Uh, and it is a film that we've talked about many times before and we'll probably talk about again because it's really great, and yet it is weirdly, largely undiscussed when people bring up the filmmaker's filmography because it doesn't have samurai in it. Uh, it is Akira Kurosawa's Dersu Uzala. Oh, I didn't know that was rated G. I would have put that on my list. That was oh my rated gosh. G. Okay, yes, we that was that is rated. I saw that G, for that the first is. time recently. Uh, uh, we did a podcast about it uh, when we were talking about uh, Star Wars of all things. Yeah, because it actually had a lot of influence on Star Wars in terms of the philosophy of Star Wars. Uh, a, a major, a couple of major plot points are lifted mm -hmm. from the film, like uh, the the scene where they're on Hoth and they need to find a, a escape from the cold. Uh, and indeed, the character of Yoda is almost directly lifted from Darius Uzala. They just made him an alien and gave him yeah. superpowers. Like, other than that, he's basically Darius Uzala. Uh, Darius Uzala is a 1975 uh, a film uh, that actually takes place in Russia, where uh, a group of soldiers are traversing the wilderness trying to map the country. Russia was a very, very, very big <laughs> place. Uh, and a lot of it wasn't very well developed and very well cataloged and so they needed to come up with a map of the place and so they're trudging around the wilderness just doing their mm. best when they come across a very short very unassuming very unusual man named Dersu Uzala and Dersu Uzala is a trapper he lives in the woods he traps animals and he sells their pelts and that's how he makes mm. his living. He spends most of his time, most of his life, fending for himself out in the woods. And initially, and thank God they don't belabor this point because it would have been insufferable. Initially, they don't think mm. much of him because they're soldiers, they're city folk, they they know everything. And then very quickly they realize that Dersu Uzala knows the terrain, knows how to survive. He's a better shot than any of them are. He's actually like quote unquote tougher in more masculine kind mm. of ways. But he's also, and this is more significant than anything else, he is completely unfettered by the distractions of modern life. Uh, modern at the time. This movie takes place in the early 20th century. Um, and their encounters with him and their adventures with him as they move through the wilderness and he saves their lives and they save his life at one point and they come to deeper understandings about life and the universe. <laughs> you know, there's a scene in this movie where uh, uh, this, this I think he's a captain or something, and he's 
uh, forms this very close bond to Dersu Uzala over the course of their time together. Uh, and they're just staying up, and they're like, they watch... I honestly can't remember what it is, because it's irrelevant. They watch the sunrise or the sunset while the, while the moon is in the sky at the exact same time. They're in this, like, perpetual mm. state of equilibrium. And it's very clearly an influence on the shot in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker looks out over the twin suns. And it's just one of those perfect shots <laughs> in all of cinema. It's just absolutely glorious. It is an actual, like... A celebration of the natural world and our very small place mm. in it. Um, and it's also full of wonderful grand adventure and suspense and uh, fabulous characters. Uh, it is uh, bitter and tragic, I think, at the end, but it's also deeply inspiring. Um, there really isn't a lot of films quite like it. And it's so disappointing to me that it, it so rarely gets discussed when we discuss Akira Kurosawa's filmography because it is a uniquely mm. lovely film and I will take any opportunity I can get to remind people of how great it is and hopefully get more people to see yeah, it. Yeah, it, it really uh, Kurosawa was such a master that we kind of took him for granted I think so it's like oh the Dersu Uzala is one of his lesser movies. Yeah, a lesser Kurosawa film is still a classic, uh, if, if you want to think of it in those terms. Um, the moment that stands out for me for in uh, Dersu Uzala is... It is about this sort of bonding and this uh, learning to live with nature, this idea that uh, you can be part of the landscape and live with it, uh, is eventually sort of undercut by uh, time that this is actually a very sad film that ultimately ends up being very much about entropy and about how this sort of natural world is going to fall prey to encroaching modernity. Uh, and there's this really penetrating shot when Dersu Uzala, uh, who can no longer care for himself in, in the wilderness is brought to the city. And there's this one static shot of the interior of the soldier's home where he's just sort of uh, standing at home and the camera's locked down. It's kind of close to the ground and it's looking up at the family and uh, you know, dad comes in through the door and mom is sitting in a chair and kids over over in, uh, in, in the back sort of playing. And the shot just sort of stays there and it takes you a really long time to realize that Dersu Uzala is also in the frame. He's, he's over to the extreme yeah. right of the frame and he's just sort of like slumped over facing away from the camera and you realize, oh gosh, he doesn't even exist in this place. Uh, so it, it's actually it's also a very very sad film in addition to being very kind of yeah. uplifting and profound uh, and you know that's the brilliance of it those are you know pieces of the human tapestry yeah no, I, I love it to pieces and uh, yeah well I you know I actually thought there was a small chance we would mm. both pick it but I guess it was, it was it, it's, it's, it got overlooked so I'm very curious mm. to find out because uh, we had almost no overlap this time. There's only one film yeah. on both of our lists, and I guess it's going to stay that way. Uh, what well, is number one? Number you one might pick? be able to predict this one, but my number one pick is uh, Stanley Kubrick's film 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, this is one of the best ah, films yes. ever made, just period. Uh, I, I started with The Wizard of Oz, I ended with 2001. These are all films you know, uh, but 2001 
bears constant repetition just because it possesses that one rare quality that uh, Roger Ebert referred to as elevation. Uh, He was very interested in uh, this notion that elevation is descriptive of a certain kind of emotional state, and he feels that the best of art makes you feel like something is growing within within you that your mind is reaching a higher understanding of something that feeling is called elevation and 2001 reaches that it also is one of the few films that i've seen that really tries to put the entirety of humanity into a broader context uh this is a movie that starts in the uh prehistoric world when uh Human beings haven't even evolved yet. It's still like early hominids. And how our use of tools... Uh, like the, the, the entire first sequence is about sort of these hominids uh, uh, learning to use tools for the first time, which was a, a great evolutionary step. The movie argues that that sort of evolutionary step was actually uh, brought about by this bizarre, near-supernatural cosmic catalyst, these big black monoliths that just sort of appear on earth uh but it equates that step in evolution to space travel our next tool Mm. and how every time we invent a new tool it is eventually used for violence and death but it's also a very vital step in our growing as a species and by the time we get to the end of the movie we've gone from the prehistoric world into the world of the future, 2001, uh, into uh, a sort of into our own minds, a, a new kind of infinity, until we finally reach the point where we finally evolved high enough to realize that we are just being born. And that is... <laughs> blows your fucking mind, man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my 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 um, mom likes to tell a story because yeah. uh, my mom was born in in 1950, so she was a, a teenager when this movie came out. And uh, there's a, a sequence in 2001: A Space Odyssey that uses a lot of like brand new photographic effects and these sort of weird new visual techniques to create what they call Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. It's just a big big psycho, uh, psychedelic sequence where uh, the the main human character is sort of drifting into this weird kind of cosmic spatial headspace uh the film plays with an intermission and uh according to my mom at the theaters where they're showing 2001 they were really stringent they checked tickets uh when you were going in at the beginning but there was no usher at intermission people would sort of come in and go out uh willy-nilly so a lot of uh the hippies would go into 2001 at intermission and they'd lay on the floor in front of the screen because all the seats were full, just high out of their minds, watching Jupiter and the Beyond the Infinite from the floor of the movie theater, just like freaking out. Uh, Beautiful. And that said, it's also an incredibly technically proficient movie. Kubrick was really a master of craft. Is really interested in making sci-fi technology that felt futuristic, but also kind of usable and felt a little bit like a space where a human might actually live. And uh, so as such, the spaceships do feel a little bit like a, a space you could walk around in. And, you know, he constructed these really elaborate sets that rotated in the studio and, uh, you know, got all these really interesting angles and... Uh, 
all of these camera techniques that he would later use to uh, fake the Apollo moon landings. Uh, so it all looks very authentic. Um, and uh, so I think any film, any science fiction film that came after 2001 A Space Odyssey took all of its visual cues from it. And now anything that takes place yeah. in space in sort of a speculative sci-fi kind of way owes a debt to 2001. Uh, I, uh, 2001 has... It, it's got grandeur in a way that I think most mm. films dream of. Um, I think you can definitely see this in the films of like someone like Denis yeah, Villeneuve, yeah. for example, where he's desperately trying to get you to appreciate just how huge and epic and important mm. everything he's doing is. But what I find is distinct about 2001 and what I think almost none of its imitators mm. ever grabbed is Kubrick doesn't need much to get you there. In fact, the story of 2001 is almost bizarrely uncomplicated. <laughs> uh, it is, here's here's mankind in the past. There's a weird monolith, we'll get to that, but it makes all the, 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 the all of these yeah. creatures smarter. Okay, cool. We're going to skip ahead a few million years, and now they're in space. That's it. All the rest of human history, <laughs> irrelevant. We, we, we're at we're on the moon we find another one of these damn things okay so we go search for another one while we're there our computer tries to kill us all and then eventually we go into a trippy light show and we're reborn like there's not a lot of plot <laughs> or character development or incident, or I mean, the, the Hal bit becomes like a centerpiece just because. Oh, this feels kind of like a movie mm, for a minute. It's like some thrills and this, plots this and building tension artificial... in that sequence. Yeah, but even then, it's incredibly simple. We are on a spaceship. We have an artificial intelligence who is helping us run things. The artificial intelligence decides that the human element on the ship is a, is detrimental to the mission and decides that they are mm. expendable. And so humanity has to fend for itself against the that which we created. It's not a lot to it in, in like a plot way. It's not trying to keep your attention through excitement or uh, action. It's actually incredibly mm -hmm. slow if you think about it. And yet it is absolutely riveting because it is mm -hmm. deliberate. Nothing about this movie is moving faster or slower than it actually needs to move. It is completely just... There's a whole sequence where we go out into space that is literally just a flight attendant serving people on a spaceship in zero gravity as if they were on a regular airplane in the yeah, 1960s. Yeah. That sequence, nothing happens in that sequence. It is just being present in that space the way that we were present... In prehistoric mm. times, the way that we are present when one human being's consciousness evolves, it is simply taking these most gigantic moments in human history and sometimes the smallest moments and being fully present for them, appreciating the significance of them. And that's something that I think a, very few, even great filmmakers are truly great mm. at capturing is to make us feel truly 100% present and to do that against a fantastical and bizarre backdrop like 2001 
which takes us from the furthest reaches of our past to the absolute unfathomable future Mm. that awaits us is nothing short of a miracle. It's a, it's a brilliant piece of work. It's, it's hard to imagine a, a film sort of reaching this high. It's so rare that, that films do have the, the, the kind of ambition that 2001 does in order to do that, to put humanity in that kind of a broad context. And uh, I think that the next time I ran a... Gr- and, and to get and, away yeah, with actually, it. like, do it correctly. Um, yeah. The next time I saw it happen wasn't until I saw The Tree of Life, and that movie came out in 2011. That, was, that's a brilliant movie. <laughs> I was just thinking of Tree of Life. I, I, I don't know if that's like the... I feel like we might be forgetting something, but that's definitely a film that has that sense of mm. majesty that 2001 have, while, again, making you feel as though yeah, you're yeah. there and you're fully experiencing everything that the movie mm. encapsulates. Um, it's it's yeah, a rare um, treat. Uh, and, and, again, it's another one where I'm, I feel like this would probably get at least a PG nowadays just for, like, the whole... How killing people thing, but um, fair enough. You know the MPA. You, you only have to resubmit to them once. They don't force you to resubmit to mm. them over and over again. So uh, I suspect if it was resubmitted only now for the first time, it would be a little yeah. It would be a little harsher. But I, I, it's 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 um, a little harsh, but I'd still let a kid. I'd let my son watch this, and my my son is only seven, but. He could he could take it. It's a, the the difficult the, the scary stuff is a little oblique. Yeah, I think like, you know, okay, okay a, a, a monkey hits another monkey with a bone, and that's that's kind of it. <laughs> okay, I mean, yes, that's just funny to reduce yeah. two thousand and one to that for a second, but yeah, it's true. That, I remember a, there's a joke in uh, Mystery Science Theater uh, in Cave Dwellers, which is a, a movie about cavemen, and. Uh, Oh yeah, the, the the robots yell. Everybody like there's a, a big a ruckus with all of the cavemen, and uh, Crow yells out, "Hey guys, there's a monolith outside. Everybody's evolving." Grog threw a bone into the air, and it turned into a spaceship. <laughs> mm. I remember it well. Um, well, in any case, that is it for mm. our Iron List for the best live action G rated movies. Uh, once again. Our lists, uh, and I'm going to put them in the order in which we had them, but again, the order is irrelevant except the number yeah. one is our number one. Uh, Whitney's list was comprised of The Wizard of Oz. It's a mad, 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 mad world. What's Up, Doc? The original mm-hmm. Planet of the Apes. Babette's Feast. The original Robert Wise version mm-hmm. of The Haunting. A Hard Day's Night. City Lights, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, my list, which again, I used different criteria and I uh, limited myself to films that were uh, rated G after the creation of the MPAA and were created after the creation of the mm-hmm. MPAA. So, one of the reasons why they're radically different lists. Because it's not like I'm saying 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of the best movies ever made, damn it. Uh, the list, uh, my list, uh, started with "Follow That Bird." Sesame Street presents "Follow That Bird," followed by "The Return of the Pink Panther." Uh, What's up, Doc? The only film to make both lists: John Carpenter's Dark Star, Willy Wonka and the mm-hmm. Chocolate Factory, The Muppet Christmas Carol, the original Benji. Although the remake is also good, I don't think it's rated G though. Uh, Babe, 
the pig movie, mm-hmm. not the John Goodman uh, Babe Ruth biopic. Uh, the Straight Story and Dersu Uzala. Now, Whitney, mm-hmm. did you have any films in your runners-up honorable mentions you wanted to give a quick shout-out to before mm-hmm. we moved on and announced uh, the nominees for uh, the next actually, Yeah, I had, I, had, I had a whole list. I, I feel like if I had... had the wherewithal to recognize that Dersu Uzala was also rated G, I would have lit, put it on my list. Uh, sadly, that was just an oversight on my part. But uh, <clears throat> no worries. Uh, the documentary film A Brief History of Time, uh, which ta- another spacey film that talks about sort of the infinity of the cosmos, but from the mind of Stephen Hawking. It's an Errol Morris film. Uh, the Straight Story was on my list. Um, it, it's... This, there was a time when, like, gigantic, junky Hollywood historical epics were being made, and they were all rated G, so I also included Cleopatra and Ben-Hur on my list. I like both of those movies. Um, uh, the Sound of oh, Music yeah. is, you know, a really wonderful musical. Destroy All Monsters, the greatest Godzilla movie, was rated G. Uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, okay. another horror comedy movie. That one's rated G. Uh I feel like it was redundant to include the War of the Worlds after talking about the Day the Earth Stood Still. Day the Earth Stood Still is a much better movie. Um, War of the Worlds is a lot of fun too, though. Uh, Fiddler on the You're talking about the original the, uh, uh, the George Powell the nineteen fifty three version. Um, yeah, not yeah, not the Spielberg. Uh, no, no, not the Spielberg one. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof is rated G. It's a, a film we talked about recently on a different podcast. Mm-hmm. The 1995 version of A Little Princess by Alfonso Cuarón is is a really ah, sweet yes. picture. And uh, this film is actually incredibly dark and not a film I think kids would really get behind. But uh, Francois Truffaut made a version of uh, The Wild Child about trying to uh, take a kid who has been living in the woods and civilize him. And what a horrible nightmare that turns out to be. Um, that That's a really good movie. So th- those are my runners up. Awesome. Okay. Well, my runners up and again, mm-hmm. different criteria. Uh, include uh, the Barbara Streisand Walter Matthau musical Hello Dolly, which mm-hmm. is just a delight. Uh, the Michael Crichton uh, virus from space thriller The Andromeda Strain, which is, uh, you know, the science is very uh, dated, but mm-hmm. the suspense is still great. Uh, <clears throat> this very, 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 this maybe more than any other film of my runners up came very close to making my list. Uh, that would be uh, the sci fi film mm-hmm. Silent Running. Starring Bruce Dern as a guy who will stop at nothing to save the last forest on Earth, or rather, the last forest in a satellite <laughs> that Earth is eager to destroy because apparently we don't need him anymore. Um, uh, there's a couple of films that would have made my list, I think, if I'd seen them more recently and I didn't have a chance to revisit them, so I couldn't say with confidence mm-hmm. that they held up. One of which was Alfonso Cuarón's A Little Princess, a movie that I, I know is wonderful, but I just haven't oh, seen okay. in like over 15 years. So I didn't feel like I could confidently talk about it in depth and fully support my mm-hmm. case. But it is a, I remember it being a wonderful movie. Another example is the 1970s version of The Little Prince. Okay. Uh, which features, amongst others, uh, Gene Wilder and Bob Fosse and a lot of really wonderful people in it. Um, the original uh, Jodie Foster version of mm-hmm. Freaky Friday. Is a wonderfully yeah, charming I, I, movie. I, I, that's one uh, I haven't seen since I was a kid, but I remember really liking it. Yeah, that's another one I haven't seen in a bit. So I, I felt like I, I felt like Runner's Up is a good place for it. Maybe if I'd seen it more recently, mm-hmm. it might have made my list. Uh, a really wonderful and surprisingly not schmaltzy uh, Christmas movie called Prancer. Oh, I never saw Prancer. about a little girl yeah. who thinks that she Prancer's really good. It's about a little girl who thinks uh, who. who 
is that the point now? Do I believe in Christmas? Do I believe in Santa Claus? And she finds a reindeer in her small town and thinks that it's literally mm-hmm. Prancer. And she's got to convince her dad, played by Sam Elliott, uh, to believe, too. Mm. It's really good. Uh, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, uh, the 1990s version, mm, okay. is really... Another one I haven't seen. Uh, the 1990s version of The Secret Garden uh-huh. is very good as well. Uh, I'm, here's a one where the movie itself, uh, just okay. The main performance is so unbelievably good that it also was like, if I had like a top 12, this would have been in the mm. twelve. The live-action 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> okay. The, the movie itself, it's just a cute little family film. Glenn Close should have been nominated for an Oscar, and maybe mm. she should have won. She is so unbelievably amazing mm. in that movie that it's it's almost... A, a, you, you, you have to overlook every other flaw that the film has. Because she's just that good. And the sequel is even stupider and it's trying harder to undermine her performance, but she's still <laughs> that good. Like, she's really nice. fantastic in it. Um, I'll also uh, uh, I also give a little credit to a, a very underrated family film, Herbie Fully Loaded. Uh, a couple of the Herbie movies could have made the list, but this is actually the one that I actually think is maybe the best film okay. in a lot of ways. Um Here's an ironic choice, but I think it is so oddly particular that you almost have to admit that the Oogie Loves and the Big Balloon Adventure (laughs) deserves some credit for being, at the very least, deeply strange. It is that. It is Uh, is definitely deeply uh, strange. And then lastly, the last Mm. last one I'll pick, and this is another one that came very, very close to making it, uh, is a documentary from Werner Herzog called Cave of Forgotten Trees. Uh, which, uh, which I've missed that one. Uh, I haven't is, seen that one either. It, it, it's, it's not my favorite, but it's very, very good. Uh, and it is about Werner Herzog making a thing about cave paintings. And like it's it's in the most mm-hmm. Herzogian kind of way. He's like, oh, here are these uh, cave paintings. They're very interesting and they're very old. And Werner Herzog goes, yes, but do they dream? <laughs> and the guy's like, Oh, sure, <laughs> like he does. People don't even know mm. what to do with her talking that way. I love that, but uh, it's a really good documentary. Um, so anyway, those are our runners up. Those were our picks. Thank you everybody for listening to yet another uh, deeply epic episode of the Iron <laughs> List. Um, next time on the Iron List, everyone on the critically acclaimed Patreon, that's Patreon.com/slash critically acclaimed network, has the opportunity to vote for our next topic, and our next topic could be any one of the following five things. So please head on over and vote with your head, vote with your heart, just vote, damn it. All right, the options are uh, the best teen comedies ever, uh, the most 1980s movies of the 1980s. We've already done the 90s. Mm. Why not the 80s? Uh, <laughs> here's an interesting one, and uh, I want to make it very, very clear that there will be a stipulation that werewolves are not allowed here because it's too easy. The best animal transformation movies. These are movies in which a person is turned mm-hmm. into an animal. But not, not, not a werewolf. Not a werewolf. That's a different thing. That's a, that's a different subgenre. Uh, this would be more along the lines of stuff like uh, the shaggy yeah, dog. Yeah. You know, that kind of vibe. Or, or any other variation we can think of. But as long as they're turned into an animal, it counts. 
uh, but not a werewolf because that's a that's a fictional creature. We're talking about an animal. Okay, next up, uh, the best YA movies, movies that were based on young adult literature. And then lastly, uh, you could pick for us to continue our ongoing series based on the alphabet, the best movies that just happen to begin with the letter We're already F. up to the letter F. We've done... Already We're up to doing, the letter F. Pretty good so now. far, honestly. And I really like those because they give us an opportunity to talk about films we otherwise might never have called right. the best of anything. <laughs> so it's always really fun to, to explore. So uh, those are your options. Head on over. Uh, by the time you're listening to this part of the podcast, they should already be up on the Patreon page. We usually leave that poll open for the better mm-hmm. part of a week. Uh, so you have time to get over there and vote. And uh, a very big shout out to all of our patrons for picking an interesting topic for this month. You always do, but mm-hmm. this one was fun. Uh, and uh, feel free to uh, join up and enjoy all of our exclusive Patreon stuff, including uh, our show, All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek ever. Uh, Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. And also, as of the most recent months, every single film ever nominated for Best mm-hmm. International Feature. Uh, we do commentary tracks. We just released one uh, for All That Jazz, all speaking of Bob Fosse. Uh, and uh, we do hangouts, we do trivia nights with our patrons. It's a lot of fun. So thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and all of our other shows could not exist. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you can't afford to be a patron, please subscribe. Leave us a comment. That would really help. Uh, any sort of review uh, really helps us find another audience. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at Whitney if you would like to discuss anything we mentioned in this podcast, if you would like to point out a great live-action G-rated movie that maybe we forgot to mention, uh, if you have any thoughts at all, any questions at all, feel free to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We also have a P.O. Box. Whitney, yeah, what is that Send it to the box? Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And uh, until next time, that's the list.